Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. This week, Rob Zach and his team at DEA go after Victor Boot. The Merchant of Death. He's already a wanted man, at least in yeah, one country. It, 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 he was, uh, but then the question is, do the folks that have it lodged still want to enforce it? Will they actually prosecute him? So um, a red notice, for lack of a better term, is like an international arrest warrant. You're basically putting the rest of the world on notice. And, and there's a couple different ways to do it. You can have a red notice that goes out blanket to everybody, or you can uh, do what's called a diffusion, which is much more country-specific. So instead of telling the whole world, you might know, let's say you had intel that, that someone was going to travel to a specific country. You might only want to deal with one country uh, to take the uh, take away the risk compromise. Um, either inadvertent, everybody trying to do good, maybe people jump something, or you know, on the bad side, um, you might have places where these bad guys had uh, infiltrated authorities. That's what they do. They, you know, they, they corrupt countries that they go to so that they're protected. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Animal Control Week. Uh, well, well, first of all, welcome back to Game of Crimes. I am the ultimate host <laughs> on the internet with Morgan Wright, with my ultimate co-host, the man of the hour, the man moving to Florida. Steve Murphy, but call me Murph. <laughs> We're just getting ready to start. My cat will not leave me alone. I got two cats. <laughs> will not leave the mic alone. I'm trying to keep her from rubbing on the mic here. She's making all sorts of mic sounds. The worst part is the hair gets on the microphone filter, and it's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Couldn't happen to a better person, I've seen. I know, I know. Hey, well, say, so, hey, everybody, welcome back. Yes, we are a pet-friendly, cat-friendly podcast, the most friendliest yeah. cat-friendly podcast on the interwebs. But hey, Steve. Hey. <laughs> Come on, move, cat. This, this is so much fun. I'm sorry. But, you know, it just is what it is. Hey, look, um, first of all, real quick, some good feedback last week. Uh, number one, just on Jeff Nice, man, a lot of people just so impressed with his story and stuff. And then the other thing is, they really liked the embedded episode. We we surprised everybody with an internet first. Cool. That was we enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, could you hear my cat? She enjoyed it too. Well, and and, and so you know, uh, Aaron Turner, the guy who we featured on there on the embed. Uh, I just got back from Salt Lake City. We he and I spoke together at a tech conference out there this week. Yeah, the um, slippery slop. Uh, slope of uh, freezing yeah. my ass off Salt Lake City. Oh my God, it was 36 degrees out there. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to know what that's like in here in a minute as soon as you move to Florida. Brother, I hope I never experience that again in my life. But there, I, we met a ton of great people out there. I mean, there's some, I mean, you know, some of these people are butt ugly rich. Uh, the, the general session guest speaker was the CEO of Apple. Uh, but the, everybody I met was just fantastic people out there. Tim really Cook nice. was out there? I didn't see him, but uh, he didn't call me, so I didn't go. 
Well, you should have told me, man. I had a couple questions about the next you know, generation of iPhone. I could have got to you, man. You could have got up to him and said, do you know who I am? Well, Aaron told me he was, uh, that he was on stage with a politician from Utah. You know, you know what we think about politicians. That kind of ruins it for me. I'm sorry. Yep. Yep. Well, hey, anyway, folks, just some quick housekeeping. Uh, hopefully, like I said, we enjoyed that in the embed episode. We're going to be looking. We actually have a couple opportunities coming up. We'll tell you. We think we can do that. Just a couple quick housekeeping things. Go over there to the Apple review, those five stars. You know, uh, all of the, just think of it as a sat constellation, a satellite of, of extreme, well, what do I want to say here? <clears throat> Let me know. rephrase that. Go ahead. It is a constellation of excellence. That's what it is. A constellation of excellence that has five stars in it. Okay, wait, wait. Where'd you steal that saying from? I just made it up. I was trying to, I was trying to keep my cap from hitting the microphone again, and I just... (laughs) Anyway, we're having some fun here. So anyway, just hit those five stars. It's magic. We don't know how it works. It's Disney. It's David Blaine. It's Copperfield. It's Harry Houdini. It's everything wrapped up into one thing. So make sure you head on over there. Give us those five stars. Please also head on over to our Game of Crimes podcast.com website for everything. We've got merch. You know, we'll be talking about live events when they come up. We've got our mailing list. That's a good way to get information, uh, you know, outside of social media. But speaking of social media, follow us there at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook, and Game of Crimes podcast on the Instagram. But Steve, what I'm excited about mm-hmm. is Patreon. Whoa. You know, we have been, we've got some good stuff. I actually have a great idea for our random surprise episode. Uh-oh. You know, I'm not, I'll, I won't tell everybody what it is, but it involves Loudoun County and the reason we're making the news lately. Oh, jeez. Loudoun <laughs> County, Virginia. Anyway, <laughs> let's not even get there, right? So, but you got to go over to Patreon. We actually have some good stuff. The Gabby Petito analysis, Steve and I did, actually got a lot of great feedback. Um, we've got episode six of the Real Narcos talking about the Real Narcos. And guess what, guys? This is the perfect time to listen to it. Why? Because season three of Narcos is coming out. Um, Narcos Mexico. Narcos Mexico. What? There's so many narcos going on. Can't you? I thought you did something about it. I thought you put an end to the narcos. But yes, Narcos Mexico. So season three of Narcos Mexico is coming out, which is a good time to go back and catch up on Narcos one and two with Stephen Javier. And then we will have the guy from Narcos three, Chris Feistel, coming up here probably in two to three weeks. So yes, we do. You guys are going to love it too. He was doing. He was doing what Javier and I were doing against the Medellin cartel, except. He was in a little bit more hairy situations than even we were, believe it or yeah, not. Yeah, he was with the Cali, the gentleman of Cali, that were an oxymoron. But anyway, yeah. head on over there because we got a lot of good stuff. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. And if you want to, go to PayPal.com, use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast, or PayPal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to help support the show, even if it's a one-off, we really, really do appreciate it, guys. You don't know how much. But just a quick disclaimer before we get started. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We always take the stories seriously, but... We never, never take ourselves serious. We want to have some fun, but we also want to get the facts, just the facts. Well, speaking of having fun and getting to the facts, guess what time it is, Murph? Oh, let's see. It is... (gasps) Ready? Ready? Small Small Town Police Blotter! I thought you were going to say it's embarrassing Murph time, but then again, that's... That's well, I started to, but that comes up next. <laughs> That's redundant, yeah. Hey, guess what? This first story comes to us from Scott Dickinson via our Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com account. I kind of like this one. Uh, you know, I have a fondness for the military. My son-in-law is a Marine formerly on active duty. I'm former Army. 
So assailant suffers injuries from fall, Steve. A gentleman by the name of Orville Smith, a store manager for Best Buy in Augusta, told police he observed the male customer later identified as Tyrone Jackson of Augusta on surveillance. He was putting a laptop computer in his jacket when confronted. He became irate, knocked down an employee, drew a knife, and ran for the door. Outside on the sidewalk were former Marines collecting Toys for Tots program. Smith said the Marines stopped the man, but he stabbed one of the Marines, Corporal Philip Duggan, in the back. The injury did not appear to be severe. After police and an ambulance arrived at the scene, Corporal Duggan was transported to the hospital. The suspect was also transported to the hospital, Steve, with two broken arms, a broken ankle, a broken leg, several missing teeth, possible broken ribs, multiple contusions, <laughs> assorted lacerations, a broken nose, and a broken jaw. Injuries he sustained when he slipped and fell off the curb after stabbing the Marine, according to the police report. Uh, that, that was a big curb he fell off of. <laughs> You know, it's wonder he's breathing. Oh my! You know, now, I got to tell you, I don't know. I think this, even if it's kind of made up, I still like the old days. Like, you know, hey man, he fell off the curb. What can I tell you? What can that's, I tell you? That's what we commonly refer to as street justice. Street justice. Well, the man got what he deserved. Well, this next one though, it's the headline says it all, Steve. Masturbator yanked from library. <laughs> Oh, I'm just oh glad they took the word off. Out of that and it was sentence. in quotes, yanked from library. <laughs> a student was caught masturbating at a computer uh, station in the Spidell Technology Center at the University Library on April 11th. Anyway, the reporting said, reporting party said he had the, he described the suspect in his late 20s with black spike hair, wearing a brown striped shirt and jeans. Uh, although university made contact with the suspect, he was only cited because there was not enough evidence <laughs> to arrest him. <laughs> I also heard the evidence oh, wouldn't stand no, up in court. So. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we got to get one of those recordings. Oh man! I, uh, <laughs> oh, anyway. Uh, no, so, where did you? Are these are these stories that our our fans have sent in, or, or? no, no? These ones, you, you guys are okay. slacking on the job. Last couple weeks, we've had everybody send stuff in. So, you guys, let's get on it. Come on, help us out here. Send us some good stories. This one came from the Daily. <laughs> 49er.com. So that must be somewhere out in San Francisco, but Masturbator Yank from Library. Somebody Jeez. somebody had a little bit too much time to write that headline. But speaking of writing headlines, Steve. <laughs> slow noise slow news day. This one comes from the Daily Mail, way over in the UK. Man stabs himself and throws intestines at police. Oh, gross. Well, you know, one of the comments was he wanted to show he had guts. <laughs> Literally. What, uh, what possesses people to do this stupid stuff? Oh, man, they're just nuts. Fucking not nuts. Kidding. I mean, what else can you talk about? Well, uh, let's end up with this one before we get to what year was it? My one, this one will be a good one, too. But the York Police Department, Tuesday at 9.57 a.m. And this one probably fit me a little bit earlier. Report that a kitten was acting suspicious on North Lincoln Avenue. A kitten? How does a kitten act suspicious? Uh... Are we talking about a real cat, or are we talking about somebody from a strip no, club? report that about? a kitten was acting suspicious on North Lincoln Avenue. Hmm. I don't know. Licking itself? I don't know. <laughs> why do cats lick their ass? Because they can, you know? And, and why would that make the news? <laughs> you got me. But speaking of making the news, Steve... Uh-oh, here this, we go now. Oh, this is, this goes time. back to me heritage. This goes back over to Scotland and Ireland, but this one's over in Ireland. They're left. The Freeman's Journal out of Dublin, Ireland, 28 March. I won't tell you the year yet, but I'm going to read it to you, and then I will ask you, what year is it? All right. The headline is, Police Raid on Father Farrelly's House. 
The Lord Mayor of Dublin said, I have urgently to call the attention of the Irish ministers to some circumstances connected with the police raid before the break of day yesterday morning on the house of the Reverend Lawrence Farrelly of Arklow, County Wicklow. Some time ago, the Reverend Gentleman was convicted under the Coercion Act and sentenced to a term of imprisonment. And then they go on to talk about all the other ministers that were arrested. Father McFadden was arrested in his clerical vesture as he left the door of his church after the celebration of Mass. Father Kennedy was uh, had his house broken into by the police at early morning, and Father Clark had his house broken into in the dead of night. I am able to relate the house to the house, the circumstances of the present raid, and the words of the Reverend Gentleman himself as given in a letter under date of yesterday. We won't read the whole letter, but basically it took 200 cops to arrest one priest after he'd been on the loose for six weeks. Why? Because it's Ireland, lad, and everything takes time over there. They're busy at the pub. What can I tell you? So, Steve, hey, the Freeman's Journal. I've met some of the members of the Guard over there. They they are top-notch, the ones we met. Uh, but they weren't from this year. I guarantee you none of these guys yeah. were around during this time. So, Steve, and I kind of gave you a clue, right? So, was it 28 March? From the Freeman's Journal, Dublin, Ireland, was it March 28, 1889, 1899, or 1879? Oh, let's make it 1901. That, that wasn't, wasn't one of the answers. <laughs> 1899. Wrong. Oh, shit. <laughs> 1889. And you just tried to, you tried to pull a fast one. Oh, let's make it 1901. Well, let's make it 1917 and a half. I don't know. <laughs> I want to know, so do you players out there think he's telling the truth when he says I'm wrong every week, or you think he's just yanking my chain? Wait Here a minute, you the news Murph. about yanking out of the library, huh? Here we go, Murph. You know, through the magic of what we can do on our little program right here, I am sharing my screen with you. Oh, no. So I want you to take a look at this at the window. Let's see, Chrome tab. There we go. Share. And take a look at it and see what that says right up there. March 28th, 1889. Do not show me porn during when we're recording a show. What are you, what's wrong with you, Morgan? Get that porn off my screen. St Steve, if this is porn, That's... dude, you need to get out just a little <laughs> bit more. <laughs> Baby, hey, you guys wouldn't believe what he just showed me on the screen here. Talk I showed about him the date. March 28th, 1889. That's why this is an audio podcast, not a Which video you podcast. you have finally learned after all these times. Yes. Very good. <laughs> I use it when it suits my argument. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Just like my wife. Jesus. <laughs> hey, I'll tell her too. Yeah. No, I know you will. By the way, we got to take you guys out to lunch or dinner and something before you take off. So, uh, Oh, by the way, have you still got the uh, pressure washer? Because we're packing up next week. Uh, what pressure washer? There you go. There you go. <laughs> I, saw, I thought I saw it on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, that's how do you think I'm going to buy lunch and dinner? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got to get that back to you too. I got to use it this weekend too. So uh, it's been sitting there. Anyway, hey, but let's let's tee up this next one because this one's yeah. kind of fun too. This one came uh, from you. There is a problem though with this next episode, and I just want everybody to know it right up front. Um, uh -oh. We can't pronounce the guy's last name. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? We'll put it on the website and see if you can pronounce it. Anybody who can pronounce it gets a beer. That's it. He's known. He's known as Rob Zach. I've known. I've known this guy for years and years and years. We worked at special operations together in, in uh, DEA back after 9/11. Um, and I've never. He's told us his last name. I still can't pronounce it. I go have coffee with me and tell him. He tells me I can't pronounce it. So he is universally known as Zach. Rob Zach. And I'll tell you what, though. But very interesting. So if any of you have ever watched. One of the worst movies ever made. It's called The Merchant of Death. Mm -hmm. uh, Lord of War, I mean. Lord of War Lord with of War. Uh, Nicolas Cage. He actually, that's, a, that's really a loosely uh, around Victor Boot, who was called The Merchant of Death. 
and you know, don't want to give away too much, but let's put it this way. This guy was on the world, was basically on the U.S. most wanted list. He was number two on the list. Steve, who was number one on the list? Uh, Osama bin Laden, wasn't it? Osama bin Laden. That's how wanted this guy was. And they said, DEA said, hold my beer. We'll yep. go get him. Oh, you're going to love this story. Um, and, and if you're going to ask me questions like that, you got to prepare me because I wasn't sure of the answer, you know. You're I got not sure study. of any answers, 1901. I got to go study one before I take a urine, you know, give a urine sample. So you, it's going to be a test. Just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> but it, and you're exactly right. And that was cool because, and we'll tell the story once we get the podcast rolling here, but it really was a challenge thrown at DEA by the intel community of our United States government. And our chief of operations at the time had the big pair, <laughs> just like you said. He's like, you want us to go after him? You can't get him? The Brits can't get him? Nobody the else FBI can get him? The FBI couldn't get him? Hold our, hero, hold our case of beer. That's right. And they went and got him. By the way, he still owed a steak dinner. So we're going to get into that in the episode upcoming, aren't we? So mm -hmm. get ready, folks. Guess what time it is. It's time to play the biggest game of all. Are you ready, Murph, to play the game of crimes? Get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on, everybody. This is one of the most exciting cases that we've interviewed so far. I think you're going to love it. Folks, you are in for a treat. I'm not talking about me, and especially not talking about Murph. Whoa. <laughs> well, first of all, I can't even pronounce this dude's last name unless I've got three sheets to the wind. I got half a box. So, Rob, why don't you introduce your name, and then I'll take it from there. <laughs> Good morning, fellas. Rob Zaharyashevitz. Very common yeah. spelling. Yes, yes. Just, just, <laughs> that's why they call him Zach. You know? There you go. Rob. So you want to be called Rob or Zach for this? Uh, you know what? I think more people probably know me as Zach than Rob, so... All right, let's go with Zach. All right, so before we get into Zach's story, this is going to be great. One of the reasons being is that we're starting to get all these stories of these cases, and one of the common threads, a lot of these cases we're talking about, they end up being either made into movies or books have been written about them and stuff because of just the wicked shit that these guys do. So what we've got, and he just punched out, as they say in the business, he just punched out just not too long ago. So we want to welcome to the show, and I'm not going to pronounce your last name, Zach. So Zach, welcome to Game of Crimes, buddy. Woohoo! Thanks for having me. I feel like uh, I feel like I just went on the witness stand, and first thing I would always have to do is explain to the judge. The judge would always ask, well, how do you say your name? And I'd say it. I'd say, Your Honor, please feel free to just use Zach. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of that, we do need to swear you in. So uh, you are going to be under oath for this podcast. <laughs> Because, no, well, no, hey, look, first of all, so, you know, one of the things you always want to do is want to find out a little bit about you. So let's start off with this. Why the hell did you want to get into DEA? I mean, so, where, you know, where were you growing up at and where did you get this crazy idea? Is that, dang, I want to become a cop. I want to become, you know, a DEA agent. I want to whoa, whoa, whoa. travel that's where, the world. That's where all the studs want to go is DEA. <laughs> what do you mean? Come on now. That, that, that's what they told me. There you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. number, rule number one, ask the military, never believe your recruiter. And you, you lived up to it, Zach. Yeah. No, I, uh, I grew up, I was born in D.C. and grew up in Maryland, uh, but my family is originally from New York. My mom and dad met at Fordham University, and uh, my uh, father's roommate is my godfather, Bobby Grant, a career DEA agent, one of the best guys I've ever met in my life. Uh, I always... You know, worship the guy growing up and um so from an early age i he was you know hearing his stories and 
and the way I thought of them. That's something I always had in my head. Um, so, so were you doing hand-to-hand candy buys in junior high and high school? <laughs> <laughs> there's, um, there's plenty of people that didn't think I would necessarily be eligible to be a law enforcement officer. <laughs> that's, <laughs> why they call it, that's why they call it a thin blue line, because you could go one way or the other here, right? <laughs> we uh, definitely had, had uh, my share of scrapes, but came out on the right side in the end. So, uh, yeah, I... Um, I went to Villanova University on an ROTC scholarship. I served a couple of years in the military, uh, United States Navy. And um, as I was coming out of the service, uh, all the federal agencies were just getting out of a hiring freeze. Uh, they were hiring really slowly, and uh, I, didn't, I didn't love the pace of things. So um, I uh, went back to law school. And, uh, so why law, why, why law school? Had you had a desire to do that, or did you just say, hey, I'm bored as hell. I think I'll go to law school. Somewhere in the middle. No, I, I did. I, I I looked at it, and uh, actually, my uncle Bobby always uh, kind of pushed me that you know that that wouldn't be a bad way to go because uh, it opens up a lot more doors for you. Um, my my dad certainly, mom and dad encouraged me, and um, it just kind of just kind of fell in place that way. I uh, graduated law school in two and a half years, and uh, literally a week after law school, I found myself in the DEA Academy. They my offer had come through. Uh, actually, it came through. On, Funny story, it, um, when I first applied, when I got out of the service, I got a rejection letter back, and they said, uh, you know, you didn't make it. And a little crestfallen, I'm not going to lie to you. So uh, I uh, actually got accepted into the Secret Service. I had these two older Secret Service agents who were just fantastic, interviewed me, and they said, look, I know they, they sold you on credit card fraud and, and uh, counterfeiting, but the reality is you're going to be about a mile from the uh, president in a stairwell somewhere counting the floor tiles just to stay awake. And sounds like, you know, you want to do investigations. <laughs> this really may not be your thing. And best advice I ever got. They were awesome for doing that. And, um, yeah, so, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I ended up in law school. And then a month into law school, DEA came and called and said, okay, you're in, let's go. And I, I said, look, I just got a rejection letter from you two months ago. And they said, yeah, when we started hiring again, the first cut. We didn't like you then, but we like you now. DEA, don't even ask, okay? (laughs) Right. They basically said the first cut when we started hiring again was uh, former law enforcement officers with narcotics experience. And I said, well, you didn't exactly explain that. So, uh, yeah, so they were really good about letting me finish school, though. And then I, I came on as soon as I was done law school. Nice. Wow. So um, what did you focus on in law school? What was your area of uh, focus that you want? If you'd not gotten the DEA offer, what would you have gone on and done? I probably would have tried to be a prosecutor somewhere. I focused on criminal law with uh, secondarily with uh, business law. So yeah, kind of the, the two areas I was interested in. I was going to either be involved in, in uh, criminal law in some form or else I was uh, going to go try to make my millions with uh, a lot of friends up on Wall Street. Or like Murph said, you're just everybody was at that point one paycheck away. You could either go, you know, the good side, the dark side, you know. So yeah, no, exactly. Good. We're glad you ended up there. So hey, let's let's talk a little bit about it too, because it's always fun to talk to people about uh, their academy experience. <laughs> so <laughs> see, you're laughing already. You know. So yeah. how fun was it? Uh, day in and day out, I don't know if the word fun <laughs> is what I, it actually was. A lot of fun. Uh, it, it's a grind. It gets old. Um, you know, living there 24 seven, but, uh, having already been in the military as well. I mean, that was a piece of cake compared to being in the military, the living conditions are way better. So, um, it's, it's not 
Murph and I talked about this the other day. Uh, it, it is not a benefit to have a relative in DEA when you're going through the academy. Um, I learned very quickly that it would do me no use to drop his name. Uh, <laughs> Why did? Wait a minute. Did you try dropping his name? No, I, I, I'm joking. I didn't. I actually didn't want anyone to know. And then I, within the first week in the academy, we're in, we're in a class. I don't, I don't remember which class, but um, one of the instructors burst into the door and uh, asked me to, quote unquote, asked me to stand up and said, uh, you know, you didn't tell us that you had that you were Bobby Grant's uh, godson. You know, you got some explaining to do. And, um, <laughs> right. We had, right our, our, <laughs> our class coordinator was this really uh, hardened former army ranger, Tim Kutza. Um, oh, I love geez. the guy. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a maniac. <laughs> Um, Rangers lead the way. Never forget that. Yeah, great guy. And so, believe it or not, we actually had a minister in our class as well. Um, and uh, so the first week of class, uh, it also came out that I had a law degree, which is, again, not a good thing in the academy. <laughs> Makes you, uh, it's like having, wearing a bullseye. So. Oh, well, you're a target now, brother. Yeah. So uh, Scott Sieben, God rest his soul, he uh, passed away in a motorcycle accident a couple of years ago. But uh, phenomenal guy. He was uh, he was a, a minister, and decided the <laughs> DEA was going to be part of his ministry, I guess. And so he first week he became preacher, and I became barrister. And uh, because of our special skills, Mr. Kutza decided that um, he was going to use us for any coordination issues that the class would need. So he'd burst in the room every day, say, preacher, barrister, my office. And we'd have to go see what business there was to tend to. Uh, some people would call that you were the two class bitches. <laughs> That's a, a very kind way of phrasing it. Mark. Oh, yeah. Yep. There was a, you know, and just a quick story in my class, I was the second oldest guy. And the, there was one guy just a little bit older than me. Uh, I had 12 years on his cop. He had, I think, 10. And we were those guys. We were the class bitches for 53. Yeah. What class number were you, Zach? Uh, was it BA 124? Yeah. Wow, that's a lot of 53 to 124. There was a lot of classes in between you and Murph. But, of course, <laughs> Murph's, is, you know, Murph's ancient right now. He's he's being propped up. You know. And, by the way. Um, a, what well, would you say? I can't no. <laughs> Listen, Murph, Murph told me he's just aged well like a fine wine. <laughs> Yeah, with the I'm cork more off. Like, I'm more like a rotten grape, you know. <laughs> maybe maybe a raisin now. I don't know. So you're going through the academy. What was your favorite? What, what if, when you look back on it now? What's the what's the favorite thing? Was it weapons? Was it physical? You know, whatever. What was your favorite thing about the academy? You remember? Wow, that's a, that's a tough question. I, look, it was always fun being out on the range. I, I was never a huge gun guy, and even through my whole career, I wasn't. Well, um, hell no, you came out of the Navy. You guys just fired missiles and had submarines. You didn't have to get your hands dirty. Yeah, exactly. We we were there to we were there to taxi around the Marine Corps. Uh, <laughs> and the, and the, Marines, Say, <laughs> the Marines will tell you that. Well, that's what yeah. every Marine I ever met was kind enough to tell me. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the boat taxi. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, look, the range was fun. Uh, getting paid to go out and work out and, and shoot and do all that fun stuff was good. The classroom time would wear you down after a while because there'd be hours of it. Um, yeah, just just the overall experience. I, I mean, it, it's uh, you do quickly get that idea of the camaraderie that, that you're going to have in law enforcement. So, you know, you're all in it together and you just dig through it and uh, and – a lot of friends to this day. I, I keep up with uh, at least probably ten guys out of my academy class, uh, so it's it's good. Did, did you, you did like, you graduate number one in any category at the academy? 
Come on, you're fresh out of law school. You ought to have the academic part down. Uh, yeah, I think I did pretty good in the academics. Uh, I was not, I was not a sharpshooter. I'll tell you that. I, uh, uh, I mean, not qualified enough to carry a gun. So if there's anybody, I gotta be careful. (laughs) This could be recorded. I might have liability out there. Uh, no, um, yeah, I did all right with the books. There was nothing. I I, I think I just kind of got through. I was one of only four guys in my academy class to not get one of their top three picks of where to go. So the way it works is when I was going through, uh, there's 50 of us roughly, and they had 50 openings that they put before the class, and you got to put your top three choices out of those 50. And uh, I I was one of only four guys that got none of their three choices. I think I put Miami, Houston, and Tampa. Well, fairness, all super nice spots everyone wants to go to. Uh, I had zero desire to go to New York. Uh, best thing that ever happened to me, but I got sent there, I think largely because uh, at the time I was single, uh, I had family from New York, not, you know, there's an idea that like, they don't necessarily want to send guys from Mississippi to New York because they might stick out a little bit. <laughs> what, are you, what are you trying to say about us Southern boys now? Be careful. Be careful. I love you. I love you, Murph. But <laughs> it's I'm a, not going to fit in. <laughs> yeah, like Murph didn't stick out down in Columbia either. So, Well, you know, when I go to New York and meet with the DEA guys, I tell them, every one of you guys got a freaking accent, man. Can you talk Southern or something? Talk English. You know, I don't care. But, hey, did you not lose anybody out of your class? All 50 graduated? Uh, No. God, you're really, I mean, you're making me think today. You promised you wouldn't do that, Mark. Uh, we had, uh, well, we had the guy that actually came in number one, I think number one in our class ended up, um, no, he didn't come in number one, but he came in the top three. He ended up going, leaving DEA shortly after joining, going back to the Mississippi Bureau of Narcotics. A uh, couple other guys, uh, I think, decided it wasn't their thing. Look, the movement around, everybody goes in and then, thinks they'll get what they want and then next thing you know they got to move and some guys say well I didn't really think I'd have to <laughs> yeah so, but you uh, did nobody washed out of the academy during the academy we might have had one but I really don't remember off the top of my head I don't remember anyone washing out we might have had one that had to repeat or repeat part of it but uh our our class stayed together pretty well I think when when Javier went through Morgan didn't he say like half the class washed yeah, out and, they had quite a few people drop out I think our class we had six get booted which was Murphy could only count to five at that point, so he had to have somebody help him with, you know, hey, six. I learned. I learned what six was. <laughs> you learned how to count. I also learned I didn't want to be number seven. That's right. <laughs> hey, so how did you take the news when they said New York? I mean, you know, wh- what was your thought going, what am I going to do in New York? You know, you're going to have to talk like this. You're going to have to start using your hands or, you know, put the coffee talk, you know? You're going to yeah, have to learn the accent. Uh, you know, well, look, I wanted to go somewhere sunny and you have all these ideas in your head. I had a lot of friends from Villanova that were working up in New York. So it, in that sense, it was it was great. Uh, I knew people up there and I had family up there. Um, but, it, you know, it's really not what I was looking to do. So I, I was I was bummed out for, for a short minute and then um, had some, some older guys on the job pull me aside and say, uh, including my uncle, and said just... Uh, um, you don't know how lucky you are. Like, this is going to be the greatest thing for you. You may not see it this second, but trust me. And they were 100% dead right. I mean, uh, there's something in DEA they call the New York Mafia, and uh, it's alive and well. And, and those guys all just take care of each other, and you learn every part of the job. I was, I was in New York, I want to say two weeks maximum, and we hit uh, 1,100 kilos in a stash house, cocaine. 
Um, so when you hear a seizure of that size in the United States, it's usually sitting in a tractor trailer somewhere. It had already made it. We already had a wiretap up and it had literally made it into town. It was in Queens and um, we're out on surveillance and we, we got the right guy, followed him to the house. Uh, somebody grabbed the guy, got the keys to the house from him, went in, looked everywhere. They couldn't find it, couldn't find anything. And we knew from the wiretap it had to be in this house and uh, looking and looking and looking. And finally, uh, one of my partners, Mike Barbuti's looking around, gets frustrated. He's in a bedroom and he, uh, he kind of plops down on the double bed and it's hard as a rock. And uh, he said, what the hell? He pulled up the comforter <laughs> and it was, the bed was made of bricks of cocaine. That's how they were hiding them in the stash house. I want to and, find that furniture store. Oh uh, yeah. It's crazy. Right. And so, uh, I, I mean, I can't even, I, I don't, I'm not good enough at math to give you the calculation of the street. Though. I think at the time cocaine was probably $30,000 a kilo in New York. Somewhere in that ballpark, so you do the math. I mean, it's unbelievable seizure. Buttload of money. Yeah. So you're sitting, uh, you're going, huh, this bed feels a little lumpy. It's not the water bed I thought it was. Now you got 1,100 kilos of Coke. And so you're sitting there, go, did you finally go, okay, maybe New York's not so bad. You know, maybe I could make something out of this. Yeah, I mean, that's when you, you realize that kind of work uh, doesn't just happen everywhere. I mean, look, there's other great cities. There's a lot going on in LA and Miami. But I mean, it, you did realize that... Uh, Anybody that did time in New York, and that 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 is said that Doing way on time. purpose. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, there is a dual meeting. Um, it, it's tough. The it's expensive as as heck. You know, when you're on a government paycheck. Um, so you know, everybody's watching all of these movies, Scarface, whatever, and they're thinking they're thinking kilos. But what was it really like to see 1,100 kilos of coke for that first time? I mean. You know, it's like Murph was talking. We were joking. His biggest bust before he got on DEA was two ounces. And then on one of his first operations, they did 400 kilos. And he's going, I didn't think there was 400 kilos of Coke in the world. So when you see 1,100, how does that register? I, I don't even, I, I'm not even sure I know how to put it into words. I mean, um, it was, uh, and until I went to the academy, I'd never even seen cocaine, period. And, um, and then just seeing this in front of you. And we had to we had to box it up. I mean, we had to get we had to package it up and get it out of there, which took um, literally hours. Um, I think uh, I think we had to. I forget how we transported. I think we might have had to rent a U, like a U-Haul truck or something to get it out of there. Uh, so and just think about the undertaking that that some bad guys got it in there in the cover of night, you know, in a tractor trailer. It's pretty amazing the way that business is conducted. And um, but here's the flip side. I spent the next four years in New York waiting for it to happen again. I mean, you don't realize <laughs> I, I was spoiled really young because you don't realize. Uh, and that's a, as time goes on, you start to realize what a what an undertaking it really was to have done that. So you, you kind of I mean, so eleven hundred, it's like you're thinking, oh, the next one's going to be two thousand, then five thousand. So but that was like the the pinnacle of, of your dope seizures in New York. Yeah, I mean, we had multiple multi hundred kilo seizures, but um uh, anything, once you get, you know, even in New York, once you got over a hundred kilos, you've made a big seizure. Um, so yeah. And, and not too long, by the time I was leaving New York, you already, the trend was already going. The Mexicans were already getting to where they didn't want to send up shipments at that big. Cause it just didn't want to take the, the chance of losing it all at once. The risk. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the, the counter group would be the last case, the last wiretap I did before leaving this group. Uh, bringing, uh, we called it Operation Cadillac because they used a certain type of Cadillac that had a natural void built into the chassis where they could fit 25, I think it was 25 kilos uh, up and $500,000 back every time. And that's what they just did every week and, and drew a Mitigate lot less attention. Risk, yeah. yeah. And, and, and they had been doing it for a couple of years by the time we finally hit them. So, um, 
you can see that, but if you extrapolate the numbers out over the course of a year, they were moving, you know, they were moving over a thousand kilos of dope. Man. Well, and then that goes back to, you know, a lot of people, and this is the inside baseball. This is why this podcast is so great because we give you inside information, but I remember too, working with a lot of the state troopers uh, and, you know, in the patrol, when they started doing interdiction, they would start building these uh, concealment databases, you know, where are all the traps or the concealments yeah. on there. And there was a really neat tool, the Ohio's, I think it was the Ohio state patrol had, cause a lot of them would have magnetic locks or something that would open up panels or get you access to stuff. So they had this thing called the bypass tool and it was pretty cool. You could run it, you know, and it would find the, 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 the magnetic locks. And some of them were, you wouldn't even notice it. It'd be like two little rivets on an air vent and you had to take a penny and close the circuit to pop it open. And yeah, it's like, exactly. you give them enough time, they will figure it. Well, when we had uh, George Young on there and he was talking about moving uh, all of his uh, hundreds of pounds of marijuana, he found a guy that was a just a marvelous mechanic and they, they created, uh, what was it, Steve, hydraulic lifts for an RV? I mean, they actually lifted the RV up. Yeah. No, when I, when I was in New York, we actually flipped a guy that ran a trap shop. He, uh, he, he was worked at a... I guess it was an auto repair shop of some sort, but he ran a trap business and there were guys all up and down the East coast, um, were going to him to have, and one of the big things that he would do is, uh, fish tank stands. You know, you got Murph knows you go into like a lot of drug dealer, a lot of drug dens. They like to have their big fish tank with all their fancy tropical fish. And he'd have like, um, hydraulic or electro electronically operated hidden compartments and fish tank, anything you could imagine he'd build a trap into, you know, and that, and that, there's a, a uh, an interesting point, I guess, for listeners who are not familiar with uh, narcotics investigations, there's a whole peripheral uh, group of businesses that kind of surround narcotics trafficking and money laundering. And, and there's a perfect example. There's two, you know, one with hidden compartments in vehicles, other hidden compartments in the house. Uh, you know, people are, they may never touch the dope, but they're cert certainly facilitating uh, narcotics transportation and, and the hiding of the product and the cash as well. Oh, yeah. The same guys that you always say, God, if they just put incredibly talented, if you just put that to something positive, yeah, you, know, you could. Yeah. It is capitalism, comrades. <laughs> it's all good, all good. Well, hey, so how long were you in New York? I was in New York five years, and then um, in uh, 2002, 2003, uh, in the shadows of the of the World Trade Center having come down, um, DEA started. Uh, some specialized group, international group. Um. Well, let's stop there for a second. Yeah. You just, you can't throw something like that out. We got to roll back. Were you in New York on 9-11? Yeah, I was. I was. So let's, let's dive into that. Where were you at? What was going on when, when this all started going down? Uh, well, ironically, that on 9-11 itself, that day we had a, uh, DEA had a charity golf tournament scheduled on Long Island. And uh, I was, uh, um, had an apartment up on the Upper East Side with my now wife. Uh, Stephanie and we were, um, I was just leaving the house and the first plane hit. I was about to run down to the DEA office, meet up with another guy, um, and then head out to the golf tournament. And um, the first one, it was off, you know, something didn't seem right about it, but okay, it's, but uh, look, a plane hit the World Trade Center. But, you know, I don't think your first thought was necessarily terrorism. But then just as I left the house, I, I closed the door and my, my wife called back to me. She said, get back in here. And I came back in. She said, another plane just hit the tower. And, uh, and that's when you just knew uh, Armageddon was here. And um, I, I just remember driving down to the, to the office, which is about, you know, with New York traffic, you know, 20, 30 minutes down to the, the lower part of town. And, where was your office in relation to the Trade Center? Uh, so 
New York office is in Chelsea, so it's um, you know just a mile or two north of that. Uh, short trip down. I mean, the Trade Center is right by the Southern District of New York, the United States Attorney's Office, where we took most of our cases. And um, in fact, my wife had before we had just moved in together in that June. So what three months prior, she lived five blocks from Nine Zero until then. So she would have been evacuated out. Um, yeah, I had been in the Trade Center for a physical. They had doctor's offices in there, I think, one, one or two days prior, maybe, just a few days prior. Um, and then just through the course of the day, I mean, next thing you know, you see fighter jets are circling Manhattan. and um, Yeah, and the then, combat air patrol and the, what they call CAP. You yeah. know, I, I was living, I was in the Reagan building that morning. We're supposed to be in the Pentagon, switch meetings. And like you, we're sitting there watching that first plane hit because they have it up on the TV. And the minute the second plane hit, everybody goes, I'm like, no. We got to get out of here, and it was. Uh, I mean, we could see the the smoke from the Pentagon coming yep. up. We could, you know, trying to walk across to get to Roslyn, uh, you know, because the traffic is just complete standstill. People say, "Let's get on the metro," and I'm going, "Nah, not a good idea." So anyway, but back to you. Uh, wh what did you do then? What What did you do that day and in the following days? Well, we we weren't allowed uh, right down. Well, I, I do remember like the the one point somebody said, you know, watching the TV, they said, "Oh my God, it's coming down," and you realize, and that's. That was the most surreal moment because, you know, it was really bad, but that, that was just a, a whole different level. You just figured, OK, they're going to put the fire out. We're going to, you know, the Trade Center was bombed. Hell, what, what is it? Ninety three or whatever it was it had been bombed once before. And, but then all of a sudden the towers coming down. And I think that was completely unimaginable. Um, yeah. So then by, uh, you know, and I lost a, a really good friend from uh, from Villanova was in uh, Pete Jelanis was uh, worked for Cantor Fitzgerald and. <clears throat> there was a kind of a telephone chain going around. Everyone was calling and checking in. And, and uh, I'll never forget, you know, that night someone, one of the guys called and said, hey, uh, everybody's checked in, but Pete, you know, nobody can get a hold of him. We later found out that uh, he didn't make it out. And then, you know, I think that's my lasting image is just the people that were jumping. It was so bad in there. And it's not like they thought they were going to survive a jump. That they, uh, that, That's the image that will probably never leave me, to be honest with you. So... We, we got to, we were, so I was in a, a task force group with NYPD detectives who are the best ever. And um, a lot of, all, a lot of those guys, they all got called back and actually had to go down and, and were helping dig out. Um, and a lot of us went down, I, I think I was uh, handing out supplies and I was down there at ground zero within that night or the next night. And um, yeah, it was, it looked like it was Planet of the Apes. I mean, it was, uh, you know, that scene where they come back and everything's burnt out. It was just, it was surreal. Yeah. How long did you stay down at Ground Zero working? I don't know. I was down there for a day or two. I mean, I didn't do any of the hard work. There's there's guys that, God bless them, ended up with all kinds of asbestos cancer and everything else, uh, lung problems. But, uh, you know, we just, everybody wanted to do whatever you could. And for the next couple of months, I just remember uh, New York was like a, a zombie town after that. It was just so unhappy for a while. Um, my wife and I go to walk out to eat and everywhere you went, you walk by a fire station and they would just be plastered with pictures. Um, and, and there was pictures people would put up of loved ones. like have, And this is weeks after saying, hey, uh, if you see this person, please call. Just trying to hold on to some kind of hope when it was clear at that point that nobody could have made it out. Yeah, it's, right. yeah at that point, yeah. It's, but yeah. again, like you say, they're holding on hope. And it, I mean, I, I know some folks who worked on recovery. And I know, Murph, you probably you know, know some folks too. It's like that it just... Uh, just to be there, it's hallowed ground. To me, it's like it's like visiting a national cemetery, you know, or, or the uh, USS Arizona. That's that's hallowed ground. 
how did you guys get back into the swing of things? I mean, this is going on and how do you continue to run operations and do stuff with this? I mean, you can literally, like you say, look at your office and see smoke and everything still rising. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, some of that's a little bit of a blur at this point. I think everyone was just in such a, a robot mode. Um, we did get back to work. It certainly wasn't a day or a week, but, um, uh, you know, ultimately there was a, there was a job to do, and um, we just started to focus again. And I, I think you wanted to work at that point. It was almost a diversion. You wanted to get your head off, of, uh, uh, you know, off off the just the gloom that was around you. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, that's the beauty of New York being a big office too. A lot of friends, a lot of good people, and um, pulled together. You know, as down as the city was, it's also never been better. You've never seen more unity in that sense. People just being decent to each other and. Uh, um, so yeah, you know, we got back to life. In fact, the day I got engaged to my wife, I, uh, there was a funeral, um, bagpipes and the whole bit, another cop, cop's funeral. Um, and this was every day and I was going right down fifth Ave and you know, I was waiting for the ring to be ready to pick up. And I just had it. I just, I was so tired of funerals and, um, you know, popped into a bar and, uh, Sat and grabbed a beer while I was waiting. And I said, all right, well, this guy starts talking to me next to me. And I said, um, all right, you know, I'll get a, uh, I got to go pick up my engagement ring. I'm getting engaged tonight. And he's, the guy said, yeah, whatever. And I said, no, I, I really am. And he said, well, I don't believe you. I'm like, well, I, I don't know why I'd lie about that, but okay. Um, so I said, he said, all right, listen, you go pick that ring up and you come back in here. I've got an account at uh, five of the best restaurants in the area. And if you're for real... And you show me the ring when you come back. Your engagement dinner with your with your fiance is on me tonight. I said, all right, I'm telling you, I'll be back and whatever. I went to pick up the ring. took about a half hour. I came back in, and it was like a scene out of a movie. It was like the Cheers bar. When I walked in, the whole place erupted, and money started getting handed out back and forth. Everyone had taken bets in the bar as to whether I was for real or not. And, uh, yeah, New York is back to business. Yeah, yeah and, but this guy was awesome. He came from a family of cops. He's a man of their word. And he walked me out, took me to this nice Italian restaurant, put his card down, told the, told the uh, maitre d' who he knew that my money was no good in there. And, uh, you know, it's one of the best nights of <laughs> mine and Stephanie's life. So, Wow. Uh, did you stay in touch with that guy? No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't even give me his name. He just said it, it, it wouldn't. Uh, the act wouldn't be the same if I did that. I want nothing from you. I said, "Can I at least, wow. uh, you know, email or something?" And thank you. He said, "Nope, just uh, you know, make it the best night of your life." Can I give you a patch, a DEA patch, <laughs> yeah, you know? something, right? Challenge coin, something. <laughs> I got a buddy of mine who was a lieutenant uh, up there on the cold case squad with NYPD, and you know. New York's had their problems, but I'll tell you one thing I've always admired about New York is, you know, the cops and stuff up there. It, it, it is a family, man. They When they pull together, they pull together. You know, they do stuff for folks. And I've always just admired the just the history of the, you know, of, of the way those guys have all gotten together. And look, it's terrible to think about all the Port Authority officers, all the uh, FDNY guys who died and girls, you know, and all the people. But I, I'll tell you the one thing. It's not a political statement. I'm just thinking when Rudy Giuliani was mayor, one of the things I thought was a class act, too, is he went to all the funerals. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people forget um, um, what the time was before that. Uh, you know, again, just like you, no politics involved. Whether you love him or hate him, Rudy was the right guy at the right time. They needed uh, New York needed a little, you know, a, a field general to to kind of marshal things at that time. And uh yeah, we all yeah got Times Square it. was kind of a war zone and a you know place for you know prior to that, right? 
Uh, well, been years. By the time I got to New York, things were pretty cleaned up. It was in good shape. I heard the the, the stories of years gone by. Um, but New York was in all things considered pretty good shape by the time I got there. You know, one thing I found from uh, from New York cops is once once you become a friend, you are a friend for life with those guys. They will stay in touch with you. It's it's amazing. We used to say, you know, when I was stationed in Miami, it's like, you know, in January, you got all these New York agents and, and NYPD guys and New York State Police guys coming down to task force. It's like, it's obvious you just want a, a vacation because it's freaking <laughs> snowing and icy up, in, up north, you know. But those guys, I swear, once they befriend you, that is a friend for life. I've, oh, I've, no, they're, the, they're the best. They, they raised me. I mean, I, we had agents in the group too but i mean i got largely raised by nypd detectives and uh once they decide you're okay i mean but to your point they're just yep. uh, and you know when we were doing when we we're out on the street and you know i'm the young knucklehead that's diving through windows and you know not thinking twice before doing anything and uh every time i turned around one of them had their eyes on me and i realized that they were just making sure nothing you know yep. nothing came to pass for me and uh so i'll take that with me forever some of the some of the best in the world, man. Some of the love them to death, and that's good too because you you came in with no law enforcement experience. I mean, you were fresh into DEA, so working the mean streets of New York, working with those guys, that's like you know that's like a, a master's level, you know, graduate level courses. You know, working uh, New York City. Yeah, hundred hundred percent. And uh, there's no one better to learn the job from. I mean, they they're uh, they're really dedicated, creative. God knows, funny. If you didn't have, I'll tell you one thing. If you didn't have thick skin. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you weren't going to make it, you know, yep. <laughs> literally, uh, you know, the last thing you ever want to do is tell them, for example, like they came up with a nickname for you. The last thing you ever want to do is tell them like, Hey fellas, just, you know, I really don't like that name. If you could call me something else. Oh, you, yeah. oh then it would get, oh yeah. Yeah. There, there was a guy, there was another detective that they called 3230 and, um, I said, you know, that's one of the oddest nicknames I've ever heard. Why'd you say that? And they said, well, he had apparently put on a couple pounds and someone looked at his jeans one day and realized that he had written over, he moved up to like a 34 and he had written over the four with a two because he didn't want to give up the idea that he had a 32 inch waist and someone called him. And so from that, I mean, on the radio, they'd call it up. Hey, 3230, you up? Like from that day on, that was his nickname. Nothing we, sacred, man. Nothing sacred. No. When I was a rookie police officer in Salina, Kansas, to one of the guys that came on the same time as with me, guys said, good buddy, Brian McClurg. But we used to call him Brian U.L. McClurg. And the reason we called him U.L. is his favorite thing is, he, like, you're working midnight, and sometimes it was just so slow, they'd send you to a barking dog complaint, and it would sound like this. 902, 902, go ahead. 902, whoop, 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 unable to locate dog, you know, back, you know, 10 <laughs> So we used to call him Brian UL. He couldn't, he couldn't locate, a, you know, a brick in Old Town, like they say over here in Alexandria. You'd hear the dog barking. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't like that. Well, that guess what? We like it. <laughs> there was another yeah. guy they called. One day they, there was a guy they called the Orb. And I said, well, why do you call him an Orb? And uh, one of my partners said, because there's not a corner that guy won't cut. He doesn't have any corners, man. He's, <laughs> he's an orb. Oh, all right. And none of these are prosecutable anymore. We're past the statute no, of limitations. I'm picking so. my stories carefully. Yes, you are. <laughs> well, as, as, as befitting a barrister. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, hey, now now we can, can kind of get back because you can't drop stuff like that and just bypass it. Yeah, I was in New York on 9-11. Okay, rewind. Now we can go back forward. Now you were talking about you were in New York for five years. Uh, let's get back to that part of the story. Where would you go after that? Yeah, so in uh, right about 2002, 2003, DEA created um, what's now known as the Bilateral Investigations Unit. Uh, it's a, essentially an international investigative team which at the time was created to, uh, to go after kingpins and untouchables, guys that are so high up the food chain that it's really hard. You're not going to get them holding a kilo. You're not going to get them on a phone tap. They're, they're just above that um, and maybe too good for that. And then in the international arena, uh, the laws weren't built to go out and get them. Um, kind of the, the Pablo Escobars of the world. Uh, someone Murph knows well, right? So <laughs> I've, I've heard that name before. <laughs> heard him once or twice, right? So. Yep. Um, and there was eight of us and I was, uh, the last of the eight to be picked to, uh, to go out and get started, uh, to get the group off the ground, uh, was based out of our DEA special operations division, uh, here in Virginia. And, um, yeah, so it, part of the backstory is it was created out of the, the shadows of the trade center. Um, it was kind of DEA's answer to this evolving, uh, not just, you know, uh, terrorism, but transnational crime or transnational criminal organizations that, you know, didn't see borders uh, have a gross effect on the United States and um, and needed to be dealt with. And this is, Morgan, just so you know, this is in the listeners as well. This is a, an organization, BIU, the Bilateral Investigative Units. If you wanted to be a hardworking, case-making, butt-kicking agent, that's where you wanted to go. If, if I had been new in my career like Zach, Man, that's exactly where I'd want to be because you're going to have some of the biggest cases, which we're going to tell you about here in, in, in these episodes coming up. And this is not the only episode we're going to have Zach on and some of his cohorts. We're going to tell you about a lot of good cases that came out of out of SOD and the BIUs. But just that's the ass-kicking unit, guys. Yeah, you know, I got to make an observation at this point, though, because you guys, you DEA guys keep going on and on about how great. But, you know, BIU sounds like you copied it from the FBI BSU. BSU was first, then came BIU. So there what's, for you FBI folks. What's BSU? Bullshit University or something? Well, I, don't, I don't understand <laughs> that term. Science Unit. It oh, used to be oh, called oh, the Investigative Support oh. Unit. Anyway, yeah. that's but where the you, real thinking goes on. I promised a lot of folks I wasn't going to engage in uh, interagency bashing today, so I'm not taking the bait. <laughs> no, no, no. We're just, we, we love I'll it just, all. It's... I'll just leave it at this. In order to be effective, we copied as little as possible from the FBI playbook. I'll just I'll leave it <laughs> oh, at that. Oh, there we go. There's a all backhanded right. no, compliment. I'm joking. Thank I have you. a lot of friends in, in all agencies, and uh, they're great. We, we just I think we did things a little differently. I'll just leave it at that. And, I, and our FBI friends out there, if I would give Zach up in a heartbeat, I can't spell his last name. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's right. Rob, Zach, just go after somebody named Z with a long name, you know, 27 <laughs> letters, you know. Yeah, well, you know, we all – and the whole thing about people understand, we kid because, we, you know, like you were saying, New York, we bust your chops. If you can't take it, you're in the wrong damn business, you yep. know, so. Yep. Although there are some people who get their feelings in a Twitter because, you know, oh, you can't call me that. Well, that's, sorry about that, Snowflake. Yep. So you're in the BIU. What's one of the first uh, cases you get, uh, you start working on uh, in BIU? Uh, well, yeah, one of the first big cases. Well, backing up, our informal name at the time was the 959 Group. And that's uh, just based off the section of the law that we enforced. There, there was an international, what we call a long arm statute that lets you go out and inter- um, investigate folks uh, extraterritorially. And uh, so 21 United States Code 959 basically says, if you're, uh, if you're engaged in uh, drug trafficking anywhere in the world with knowledge or intent that, that 
any portion of those drugs are ultimately going to find their way to the United States, um, then you're prosecutable, and it was a 10-year minimum mandatory sentence um, if convicted. And, uh, and then after a few years, um, in 2006, um, uh, I believe it was Congressman Hyde sponsored legislation that became known as 21 uh, USC 960A, which is a narco-terrorism law, which says if you're trafficking drugs uh, and giving pecuniary financial support to a terrorist organization, um, either an actual listed terrorist organization or a group that acts like a terrorist organization. Um, same idea. You can be prosecuted in the U.S. court of law. And uh, in that instance, it was a hey, 20 Hey, for Murph's benefit, would you tell him what pecuniary means? <laughs> you read my mind, brother. Is that like is that like penicillin or is that that helps you with your zits? Yeah. Uh, what is that? Well, I said I said or financial and I held up a dollar sign for him. So. I am a visual person. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, well, but that's interesting you mentioned that too because we started seeing this nexus uh, between drugs and terrorism because, for example, uh, the Taliban, you know, some of those folks, what was their favorite crop to grow to turn into hard cash, you know? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And so... Look, no, that was a question. That wasn't a rhetorical <laughs> question. You're supposed to answer that, Zach. Oh. What was the cash crop that they made? Uh, oh, I, I thought it was rhetorical. It was uh, opium. It was heron. What is opium, poppy? Alex, for $200? Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. That, listen, that's how the Taliban... Uh, funded itself and continues yep. to fund itself today is exactly through uh, right. heroin trafficking. So, um, and I think those are a lot of the thoughts that went into the group being created. Um, we started off with cases mainly in, in uh, Latin America, but we spread off from there ultimately and groups started to expand. Um, and, and the focus really became, you know, more than just kingpins it was kingpins, uh, narco-terrorism, you know, terrorism supported by narcotics trafficking, um, and uh, really high-level foreign government corruption that's either directly facilitating this or, at, at worst, uh, turning a blind eye, uh, blind eye and uh, allowing yeah, it to happen. Because this is kind of leads into the whole discussion we're going to have about Victor Boot here in just a minute. But before we do, let, let's start setting the stage because now you're getting close, right, to the point of where Victor starts becoming your case, right? You're getting pretty close at this point? Yeah, well, you, you asked what the first big case was, so that was kind of the lead-up explaining, you know, how we were set up. Um, we did a case on a, a, on the FARC in Columbia, um, and the the main trafficker that we were investigating was a guy named, that they called Boyaco. His real name was uh, Jose Maria Corredor Ibagué. Uh, but for short, everyone called him Boyaco or uh, Chepe Boyaco. And he was... Um, he was a really uh, large arms and cocaine trafficker that was um, sponsored and, and given license by the FARC to operate in a certain territory in Colombia. And and for the folks listening to, so FARC, uh, you know, there's the Spanish version, but it's the Armed Revolutionary Forces of Colombia. I mean, it's the longest running, right, Steve? The longest running civil war yes, down it is. there. It's coming up on sixty years. So I mean, these are bad. These are bad people because they're kidnapping Americans. They're kidnapping everybody else hostage. The whole works, yeah. right? Yeah, perfect segue. Boyaco actually worked for a guy that they called Comandante Cesar. I believe his name was Gerardo Aguilar. Um, he was the FARC's first front commander, controlled a, a huge territory. And he, in fact, um, was the person that was uh, responsible for holding three um, United States citizens, former uh, contract employees of the United States government that had been shot down doing uh, uh, some reconnaissance flights in Colombia. And they, they were held for several years. Um, and Boyaco worked directly for, for the commander that 
Um, in fact, he was one of only two traffickers given license to operate in, in uh, Cesar's so, territory. So this is getting serious. So um, from this, you say, so that's kind of the, the preface to what we're going to be talking about. So were there other cases you were working on before Victor Boot starts getting on your radar? Because we, before we talk about Victor, I want to set the stage in some of these areas like Africa. But what other things were going on at that time? Uh, our, our group was, uh, like everyone in the world was, was trying to look at some of the higher ups of the Sinaloa cartel. You know, everybody knows, uh, who Chapo is, but as long as well as his partner, uh, Ismael Zambada, um, we did a, uh, our group did a case, uh, Lou Million did a, a put together, I, I believe it was the first international RICO charge, uh, racketeering, uh, influence uh, corrupt organization. I can't believe I'm having to tell the lawyer from DEA that. Well, I didn't know if we're going to go complete legal term. I was going to try to explain it, but uh, it's it was the, it's the the statutes that were used to take down the mafia domestically. Um, Lou did a uh, a, uh, a RICO case uh, with the Southern District of New York um, on the Norte Valle cartel, and uh, which was the the uh, successor to the uh, to the Cali and cartel. Just just Columbia. before you go any further, just so exp- tell everybody who Lou is. He's he's a he's a hero in his own right and a movie star. I won't go into that, but he, um, Lou was, uh, so Lou was the supervisor. Well, Lou was originally when he did the Norte Valley cartel as my partner in, uh, in the BIU. Ultimately he became the group supervisor and then later the, uh, assistant special agent in charge over the BIU. Um, and then rose up again. He became, uh, the head of, uh, diversion for DEA, which is one of the, one of the top positions in, in the agency. Um, and now he's, he's out in the private sector, Doing great things, so he's a, he's one hell of an investigator. Extremely intelligent. Yeah. Well, and, and to your point, uh, Morgan, it, uh, Lou also was one of the guys that helped spearhead a, a case uh, on another arms trafficker named Monzer Alcazar. Uh, Monzer uh, resided in Spain, um, had been in the business, the arms business, and the drug business back in the day, but largely the arms business for ages, and uh, was actually. Um, responsible in part for for the arms on the Achille Lauro cruise ship back in the 80s, mid 80s, uh, where uh, United States citizen Leon Klinghoffer was executed in his wheelchair and thrown overboard in the Mediterranean Sea. Um, That was one of that. That was that was probably the case that really got us on the map, made people kind of look at us a little differently. Because everybody had been looking for this guy, right? If I read my notes right, they'd been looking for him for almost three decades trying to catch him. Who's that, Monzer? Yeah. Uh, he'd had a long history of, of, of folks going after him. Um, Not just and, the U.S. Uh, too. We're talking probably Israel or uh, the U.K. You know, I mean, he's, he's got to be popular with some other countries, too. Yeah, like, like a lot of these arms guys like Victor, who we'll talk about, um, he fueled a lot of civil wars. He, he put uh, heavy weaponry in, in the hands of a lot of really bad folks, so terrorist organizations on down. And... Um, a little bit of luck, a little, a lot of hard work. And, um, we were able to, uh, infiltrate them and, um, Lou, John Archer, a couple other really just, um, phenomenal agents, Wim Brown, uh, were able to orchestrate a sting, um, on Monzer. And ultimately we got extradited him here from Spain and, uh, he was convicted at trial, uh, for conspiracy to, to, Traffic and surface air missiles, uh, among other charges, uh, which carried a 25-year minimum mandatory, and uh, ultimately was sentenced to 30 years in prison. 
And, and listen, just so our listeners know, that's a future episode we plan to have here on, on Game of Crimes. You mentioned sting, and we talked about this in, in the uh, pre-call. The United States love doing stings, but not so in other countries and in other places, Zach. So there were some areas of the world, and rightly so, that we talked about that had an aversion to stings. L let's talk about that a little bit, because that does impact some of what we're going to be talking about here shortly. Yeah, um a lot of the world, Western Europe, for example, has a very different attitude just, just off the use of informants, period. Um, they call it agent provocateur, and uh, they don't like the idea um, of, of these undercover, uh, undercover operations. They look at some of it as entrapment, um, which it, it clearly isn't. If done properly, it is not entrapment, at least under U.S. law in any way, shape, or form. But, you know, without getting too deep, some of that, some of that, concern in uh in western europe goes all the way back to world war ii and and um you know the gestapo secret police the idea of neighbors routing each other out and uh overreached by the government um uh so it's very understandable how they got there yeah but. well you talked about you talked about how tough it was to even get records i remember too is that, you know in the historical uh, uh, analogy is the Vichy government back in France during that time was collaborating with the Germans and telephone records were a huge way to you track down people. And you talk about now trying to get records out of Germany or France and stuff. It's, it's tough. And if you do get it, there's not a whole lot of information there is there. Yeah. Well, listen, that they just, they have very extensive, um, privacy laws. And if you, if you study your history, you understand where it comes from. You just put it that way. And that looks in our groups, that was one of the challenges, uh, we would adhere to the, the law of the host nation. Um, we weren't out to, to, to violate other sovereignty. Um, so the places that we picked to operate uh, were picked very strategically where we had uh, friends, willing partners, um, laws that would allow us to, to do what we were trying to achieve. And normally a really good DEA country attache uh, stationed in that country that it, uh, or that covered that country that had made a lot of inroads with, um, with local authorities that were willing to engage with us. Yeah, and the point is it's not a knock against those countries because that's their history. The point is is that these people that you're going after understand some of those things as well. So when some people operate out of certain countries where there's no what are called MLATs, mutual legal assistance treaties, where there's no extradition treaties, it makes it difficult for uh, you guys to do the job. Yeah, it makes it really tough. And, you know, when we get to Victor later, uh, there's one point where we're negotiating with them on where where our undercovers would be able to meet. And I, I think the countries he threw us out were like... Um, Moldova and... Yeah, no, exactly. It was like Moldova, Montenegro, Nicaragua, Cuba, uh, and I don't even think Venezuela. Maybe Venezuela. But they were all off the table. They were all, you know... Mostly uh, left us aligned, you know, former communist or former communist states where uh, we just weren't going to be able to operate. So th these guys know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, so let's let's talk about now getting into Victor Boot. Um, and before we even talk about what he because he was he this actually started getting onto the radar around 2000 with Alan Bain out of the British government. But before that, I mean, we want to kind of set the context, you know, and I did some research and I know you know about this too, but really since World War II, it was the, the, the conflict down in, in the Congo and in, in Africa. I mean, 5 million people died in this conflict. You know, some of these groups, it was called the uh, Second Congo War, the Great War of Africa from August of 98 to July of 2003. Five million people died. You've got Charles Taylor from uh, Liberia. You've got the Revolutionary United Front. I mean, how much of this were, did you know about while you were there in New York? Did any of this register with you that this was going to become important for your case with Victor Boot at that time? 
Yeah, you know, I I consider myself relatively well read. I I, I read about some of the conflicts. Obviously, I, I knew a little bit about that. I really didn't know anything about Victor uh, at the conclusion of um, the Boyaco case that we discussed before. He was a both a a gun runner and a cocaine trafficker. Um, we received some reporting that uh, he had been engaged in a surface terror missile deal um, with a guy named Ali Hijazi out of uh, Venezuela, who was utilizing "quote unquote" Victor Boot Airlines out of Aruba to do this deal. And um, that was actually the second time uh, Boot's name had come up to me in about a month. I'd been working a case in Western Europe uh, with a close friend, Chris Urban, and, and some other folks had indicated that. Uh, during the course of our money laundering case, uh, that this name Victor Boot had come up uh, through the purchase of an aircraft. Um, illicit proceeds were used to purchase an aircraft, um, or, or the money launders were looking at were involved in that. And uh, so at that point, I was just very intrigued by the guy. His name kept coming up, and um, I just started really beating the bushes to try to figure out who he was and, and how he fit into to kind of our part of the world and, and, our, and, and um, what we were looking to do. Because that goes back to Alan Bain, like I said, this was January of uh, 2000, and he gets up in front of the British Parliament, and that was the first time they come up with the name Merchant of Death. I mean, it was just, I mean, it's a, it's a speech, but you know, what was so amazing about that is that y you had the UN out there, not that I'm a huge believer that the UN, but it, from an investigative standpoint, they collected a lot of information, which became very important that that was used. Um, but it was clear, at least in 2000, to, to, to the UN or some other people, this guy was facilitating a lot of the arms trafficking and whether directly or indirectly, you can say people were dying because of the guns and ammunition and weapons that he was delivering to places like Angola, Rwanda, the Congo, Sudan, Uganda, Sierra Leone, Liberia, all of these conflict places. But we were consumed, obviously, after post 9-11 with Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think a lot of this kind of flew under the radar, didn't it? Um, I'm not sure it flew under the radar for... Uh, maybe for you know the, the the average folks like me out there, but I think that there's a lot of a lot of good, hard, dedicated people that that had looked at him and, and his name was coming up over and over. There was a great deal of interest. I know that uh, you know uh, other agencies in the U.S. had had looked at him and I think tried to reach out and touch him for years. Uh, look, he was he was fueling both sides of civil wars throughout Africa, not just one place either. Um, he was Charles Taylor's personal arms guy. Um, a lot of reporting that he he was fueling both sides of the uh, of the Afghani war. He was supplying both the the Taliban and the Northern Alliance. And there's a pretty famous, well-reported story of how uh, he actually was uh, uh, detained or for for an extended period of time in Afghanistan for that. Um, he was captured during a I believe during the course of an arms run. Um, so. He certainly hadn't flown under the radar. He had just been proven, I think, very hard to reach out and touch. Uh, he had a lot of near near misses, but he had no. And I didn't mean he had flown under the radar. But I meant in terms of like these conflicts in Africa that the news was reporting on. Right, they were looking. They were talking about. And so, in people's mind perception, they don't hear a lot about what's going on, even though far and away, five million people dying, biggest loss of life since World War II. Um, and that's what I'm saying from a perception standpoint. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people didn't realize that this was going on. Well, no, and I, I think that um, I think that there's certain events like the the embassy bombing over in in, uh, in um, Kenya and and um, Nairobi, in Tanzania, yeah. and in, in Nairobi, and 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 that was other places yeah. in Africa. Yeah, I, I think that that gave Africa a very different focus, um, and knowing that that was some of the same folks that later you know took down the the towers, I think that 
Um, Africa really just was given a very different attitude. Maybe it's a place that we can't afford to not care about anymore. Um, which, again, if, to your point, if you study the history, there's so much, uh, there's a lot of sadness and a lot of really just uh, horrible acts that have been committed there that the world maybe sh should have cared a little more about. Um, and so I think that a lot of things, were, as our groups were created, a lot of things just came together to put um, certain places, certain activities, certain groups, certain types of crime into a little different focus uh, on how it may be far away from our shores, but I think it all became a lot more. Yeah, especially from a humanitarian standpoint, when you talk about, you know, um, five million people being killed because of arms trafficking. I mean, this guy was flying in relief supplies on one plane and arms on another you know, Victor, you know, and he's, I mean, he's, like you say, he's dealing every side. I mean, if there's 10 sides to a coin, he's making money on it. Again, it goes back to your point earlier, like the traps people, all these, you got these business skills. Why are you doing this? But let's, before I get ahead of myself, let's kind of talk about, now you've got 959, you've got 968, you've got the BIU, you've got all of these things in place, which like you say, kind of comes together. And this really kind of, you're hearing Victor's name. So it's not the first time you've heard Victor's name, but then in, uh, uh, in 2007, this is kind of when it all starts coming together, right? I mean, um, your boss is in a meeting uh, with the National Security Council, the NSC, Juan Zarate, President Bush's uh, Deputy Counterterrorism Advisor. So it's kind of set the stage for us. How does it come about? that what's eventually known as Operation Relentless comes into being? Uh, yeah, well, that the, the story that you're relating, and I, I'm trying to be cautious on dropping names, and you're making it a piece of cake for me, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> well, this is right all, off this the bat, is, I'll say thank you, Morgan. Have you heard of a thing called the Internet, Zach? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and it's in Not a book a and a movie. I, I'm with you. I know a lot of this is out there. <laughs> um, just joking. Uh, so, yeah, the... Pretty famous story that, um, like a lot of famous stories, is uh, true but doesn't quite tell the whole story. Um, we, we were tasked, I, I believe it was a meeting um, about one of the other cases, Monzer, and uh, there, a statement to the effect of, uh, if, you, you know, if you really want to do something for your country, go after this guy, Victor Boot, which absolutely happened. Um, the way the story gets told, the answer was, aye, aye, you know, we'll get it done, and we did. But the reality is I, I'd already opened a case on him. Um, that had been open for a few months based on what the, you know, the information I told you before that we'd learned that, uh, that Boyaco um, had been engaged or, or attempting to engage in an a arms deal with them. So um, I actually think that story's even better where you know, the word comes out and said, yeah, we're already working on it. That's, that's, that's the way I like to tell so, it. But, but interestingly <laughs> enough, you say it's an arms deal. Why is the DEA interested in a guy who's moving arms? I mean, do, is he tangentially uh, involved in drugs? Or, you know, and I'm not saying this to be offensive. I'm just saying you think of all the people, why is DEA involved in uh, tracking down arms trafficking? You think that might be a, a CIA, an ATF, you know, an FBI type of thing? No, I, it's a great question, one we've been asked many times. So again, when I explained how I got to him, it was through a, a incredibly uh, prominent uh, Colombian cocaine trafficker who's moving thousands of kilos, operating labs that could produce thousands of kilos a month. Um, who also was supplying the FARC, the, the Colombian revolutionaries, uh, with heavy arms that were being used to kill, you know, how, unbelievable numbers of people in Colombia. And it had actually uh, affected United States citizens. Bombings um, caused great instability throughout South America. And so this is where you see part of why the groups were formed. This is where, you know, I think really where the term narco-terrorism started to come together. You have drugs, meeting guns, meeting terrorist acts, meeting terrorist organizations. And um, so 
one might say, why are you guys looking at this? I think the answer is because you can't separate any of it out. Some folks would say, you know, you're out of your lane. This is absolutely in our lane. The same people that are moving dope uh, are incredibly heavily armed to product to to protect their uh, infrastructure, and these are the people that are arming them. So you can't separate it out. Really, they're in that sense they're part of one you know large. Not conspiracy. to mention, their Farks provide security on the cocaine labs in Colombia, so they're they're directly involved. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and, you know, quite frankly, in, in a lot of these cases, that's what a lot of the negotiations with the undercovers revolved around. Like, look, we're looking to become uh, to continue to become heavily armed to protect our our drug trafficking. Yeah, so when they operation. threw down the gauntlet for you, they also threw down a potential reward. What was the reward that Juan Zarate was going to provide the DEA if and he was kind of saying if you captured Victor Boot? Well, I'll open by saying I wasn't personally sitting there, so uh you know, I was told secondhand. So, you know, Juan, if you're listening, I'm not trying to hang you out the dry. But, uh, there was supposed to be a steak dinner. We were told that there would be a steak dinner if uh, if we pulled this off. Yeah. Uh, Spoiler alert. Victor is caught. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, the bigger question is, have you had a good steak lately? I haven't. I hope to have one with Juan someday. But look, I, I can't promise you that others didn't. So maybe maybe the maybe oh, he, the debt's been. You settled. weren't in the circle. Yeah, you weren't in he the circle. He welched on his bet there, huh? <laughs> but I got to tell you now. <laughs> I'm, say again. I got to tell you. That. You know, I like the version of this story I heard better back in the day, and it was this meeting's going on down there. Mike Braun's chief of operations for DEA, and I and I love Mike. He's a great guy. Uh, very good for DEA. But uh, I understand in that meeting. You know, DEA is part of the intel community, so they attend these meetings, which is why they were in there with Juan Zarate and, and somebody in that meeting. I don't know if it's Juan or whoever, but, you know, they said, hey, DEA, you think you're such hot shit. You know, there's this guy named Victor Boot. You want to do something for your country? Go get him. And DEA said, challenge accepted. And what happened? You guys went and kicked ass and took names, didn't you? I like my story better. Yeah, well, well, there's a similar similar one to that Um and it was not the same meeting, but a similar type meeting. We had to give a brief on, you know, interagency. We really do try to cooperate and make sure the left hand knows what the right's doing, especially internationally. So uh, we had to brief some folks. Uh, DEA had to brief some folks. And um, a remark by someone in another agency at some point was, uh, if you guys think that you're going to be able to go out and, you know, put a case together and grab Victor Boot, you know, good luck to you. It's not going to happen yeah. in a million years. And the response from DEA was... Hold my beer. We'll tell you all... Hold my beer, working. that's right. <laughs> <laughs> what, no, I think it was something to the effect of we'll tell you all about there it. You in the brief. There you yeah. go. So, uh, Which is yeah. a professional version of fuck you. We're going to get this done, so... Yeah, wow. Look, at the end of the day, uh, I'm not even sure we knew we could pull, pull it off in the beginning. We certainly knew the deck was stacked against us, but... Um, you know, to your point. Absolutely. And therein yeah. lies well, the look. challenge. And that's what makes DEA so unique is you guys don't back away. You guys, us guys, you don't back away from the challenge. Yeah. Well, look, I think uh, one of the great things about DEA is we we're not afraid to fail. And, uh, and this is no, look, every agency runs its business the way they see fit. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of great folks in all those other places. I just know for us, uh, one thing that I've always admired and I always admired about the bosses I had is, uh, they were very risk tolerant. Um, you know, we did as much as we could to mitigate that risk, um, but we're very decentralized. Uh, you know, if I was overseas and we were on an op, I had one phone call back and the answer was immediate. You know, I would give a status report and uh, and I was always asked, you know, Lou would always ask me the same question. Do you got it? 
And I would just say, yeah, I got it. And he'd say, okay, go forth and do great things. And it was literally that easy. And, you know, if we messed up, it's, it was an international incident. But we That's just the kind of bosses you want, man. They got you back. You know, going after yeah, narco-terrorists and terrorists and, you know, this kind of stuff, it's inherently a risky business. How could it not – how could you not have risk? And the folks – I'm like you. If, if you want to take all the risk out of it, then you're not a law enforcement agency anymore. I mean it's like there, everything has a risk, whether you're the, 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 the police officer stopping a car, you're going to a domestic violence, you're knocking, kicking down a door, you know, whatever the case is. This is inherently a risky business. But the way you guys went about it, which is what I want to get into, a lot of people think that at this point then – you guys are going to be going undercover. And that's kind of the farthest thing from the truth, right? So let's talk a little bit, set the stage for how you, so as you're setting this, you know, you're starting to develop the plan. You're not talking about sending DEA people in. Who are you talking about sending in on this op? Well, yeah. So our group's very, uh, very sparingly used actual undercover agents. And there's a couple different reasons for that. One of the main ones is we just couldn't effectively cover them. We couldn't guarantee their safety. Um, so, for example, you know, you're overseas somewhere and bad guy says, all right, let's get on a boat. I want to take you for a fishing trip. We're going to conduct our business out there. And he's a good, smart bad guy. And he's doing it to be in international waters or where, you know, you can't possibly be being listened to or whatever. If it was an agent, unfortunately, you'd have to shut it down because generally speaking, we just couldn't do anything where you couldn't cover that person. Um, whereas if it's, a, you know, I, I like to refer to them as undercovers, but you, you, know, it, you could use a, the form in, uh, in the term informant. Um, we'll get to that in a second, but um, basically more like a paid undercover. Uh, they know what the risks are. There's an agreement. And, you know, these guys were unbelievable. I mean, they're well vetted by us. The only ones that our groups used, we had a stable of guys. and But they'd, they'd uh, testified, generally already testified in open court before. They'd prove their worthiness. Um, they'd prove their reliability. And, um, you know, they had, God, for lack of a better word, unbelievable balls to do some of the stuff they did. I mean, they're going in, most most instances, they're going in without a safety net. And we would tell them, like, listen, if anything happens, we can't get to you. Like, we don't have your back. And uh, so, you know, we'd sprinkle a little holy water on them and tell them we'd see them on the other side, God willing. Uh, and these guys, you know, to Murph's point before, challenge accepted. They loved it, you know. And Look, certainly they wanted to make a living, but there's also just a hey. But these guys were trait these line. guys were adrenaline junkies too. They did it for That's the, what I'm the saying, thrill, hundred percent, absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely a good part of that. And uh, like I said, look, we, we didn't use the average guys either. Very well vetted. We'd had a long history with them. They'd probably been working with DEA for years to where we would trust them on one of our ops. Um, but you know, the, there's the other thing. I think you and I were talking about it the other day, Morgan. And we had an old saying. Can't send a priest to do the devil's work, right? Or you can't, you can't, and, uh, if you're going to prosecute the devil, you got to go to hell to get your witnesses. Yeah. And, um, you know, some of these guys, most of the ones that were really good, didn't necessarily start off on the right side of the tracks. Um, most of, most of the ones that work with us had found God in some way, shape or form otherwise, and, and, uh, really liked being on the right side of it. Um, they'd already paid their penance and, uh, but they had the um, credibility, though. They had been there. They had done the work. They knew how to act. They knew what was exactly. real. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, you know, for Victor, you, you don't want a guy that's read about guns. You probably want a guy that moved guns before, you know? You're in a really heavy kilo weight cocaine deal. It, it's a big asset to have not just an agent who has experience in it, but a guy who actually conducted those kinds of deals. Because no matter how much you try to replicate it, it's you can't, you know, it's like on-the-job training for being a cop, right? You just can't replicate it completely. Um, 
And so the, I, I think that that was one of the real keys to our success, the, the credibility that they had, the escapability they had. They'd lived this life before and they'd survived it. So they knew all the, uh, the, the art of survival in that environment. And um, yeah, you know, and we had, you know, we had whatever was needed ready. You tell me you need a guy that speaks Arabic. We got a guy that speaks Arabic. We need a. How about you know, West Virginia? Did you have somebody who could talk West yeah, Virginia? Yeah, his name was Steve Murphy. Well, that's. <laughs> I say that's when we would use an undercover. We just needed someone that was a little disposable. And uh, we're going after moonshine. Get them revenue. <laughs> no, that's, a, you know? that's ATF's job. Yeah. No, I, yeah, those those are really specialized accents. Boston was usually on on high demand too. Oh man, you need well the way you want to spot talk Boston is just put an ah at the end of everything instead of summer. It's sama, sumna, some you know, summer. You know, there it's you wicked go. smart. You know, <laughs> hey, so uh, but. One, I want to tie into this, and let's dive into Victor. You said you had a lead from another case, too. So there was also a thing called a red notice from Interpol. Victor had one for a money laundering case out of Belgium at that time, too, right? So let people know about how the role of Interpol played in this and you know what a red notice was. And um, not that it changed what you guys did, but just that's part of the context, right? He's already a wanted man, at least in one country. Yeah, it, 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 he was. Uh, but then... The question is, do the folks that have a lodge still want to enforce it? Will they actually prosecute them? So um, a red notice, for lack of a better term, is like an international arrest warrant. You're basically putting the rest of the world on notice. And, and there's a couple different ways to do it. You can have a red notice that goes out blanket to everybody, or you can uh, do what's called a diffusion, which is much more country specific. So instead of telling the whole world, you might know, let's say you had intel that, that someone was going to travel to a specific country. You might only want to deal with one country. Uh, to take the uh, take away the risk of compromise, um, either inadvertent, everybody trying to do good, maybe people jump something, or you know on the bad side, um, you might have places where these bad guys had uh, infiltrated authorities. That's what they do. They you know they they corrupt countries that they go to so that they're protected. Um, so look, there's a long history on Victor. He'd been tried to grab for many many years. Uh, Belgium may seem like an odd place. Belgium was really, uh, back at that time especially, one of just the crucial places where arms deals are conducted. Um, more for the, the launching point of the planes and the financials and the privacy laws and the logistics. Uh, most of the arms came out of Bulgaria or Ukraine. Um, sure, Soviet made, but the, the physical factories were in these other places. They'd move on to Belgium, and then that was kind of the launching point. So that's how, um, you know, a money laundering case might be might be. Uh, inclined to come yeah, out of a place like that. You almost didn't get a chance to go after Victor because uh, if you read the reports, and this is stuff that's been published, right, in 2006, he may have had a very close call with Israel in uh, Beirut. Yeah, there's some reporting, I think it's out of The Guardian, that um, in the uh, opening salvos of the uh, Israeli Hezbollah war in 2006, um, uh, the Israelis might have tried to take him out in a missile strike into, into a, an apartment building. Um, which again is open source reporting. Um, I've never able to establish anything on that myself, but uh, there were some things came up on the case, some some hints from um, you know from others involved with him that uh, he had he had armed Hezbollah in the past, and uh, that's why they Hezbollah was able to give uh, the Israelis such a hard time in 2006 because of the heavy armament that they've been providing. Yeah, that was kind of a, a watershed moment in terms of the conflict, in terms of how well they were armed. It was no more throwing rocks at their Merkava tanks, I think they were called. They, they actually had some heavy weaponry. Yeah, you know, from, from all the reports I've ever read, um, the Israelis were pretty surprised that, you know, 
how coordinated they were, you know, how, how sophisticated they become and also how heavily armed they were. Uh, and the sophistication of the arms themselves. Um, so it was a whole new now ballgame. let's get into the because for any operation to go forward, it has to have a name. So let's talk. Let's talk about the name, how you came up with it, and why. In retrospect, you were telling us years later, maybe this might not have been the best name to call this. Yeah, listen, I personally wasn't involved in the name. And it oh, here we go. I mean, you're not, you weren't at the meeting. You weren't personally involved in this, but you're going to take credit for the capture. Yeah. Knowledge. <laughs> i got to be honest. I don't even know why you guys have me on today. Murph asked me if I'd come on. I mean, I didn't do any of it, but I said, mm-hmm. sure, I'll talk about it. I can it. talk about it. I read about it in a book one time. Uh, no, he got named out of, our, um, out of our special operations division, and I think the idea was uh, Operation Relentless, because um, I think the operation was... Uh, the, the idea was um, he'd been out there a long time causing all this hate and discontent in the world. And um, we weren't going to you know, stop until he was brought to justice. Um, to your point, when you said years later, I, I think it, in the, the, the defense actually brought that up as a point in trial and tried to insinuate that uh, just look at the operation name. There was nothing we weren't going to do, legal or illegal, to bring him in. He was just a victim. And, um, and we... we kind of ginned up this whole case against him because come hell or high water, um, he was going to go Smoke and mirrors. Too. That's what a defense attorney is all about. Well, what's the old saying? When the laws against you argue the facts, when the facts are against you argue the law, and when the laws and the facts <laughs> are against you, attack the witness, you know? Yeah. Listen, at the end of the day, sometimes everybody's right. We, we were absolutely not going to violate the law. We did it by the book. Uh, but at the same time, we were very committed, and, and we were going to get our guys. So you so. got this operation going. However, though, I... I kind of put this in historical perspective, Victor Boot, at least my, my extensive research, and, and I think I do quite a bit of it, in 2002, he was the number two most wanted terrorist behind Osama bin Laden. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I, I was going to bring that up before. I think, I think um, under Clinton, if I'm not mistaken, is when it happened, and I might be off on that, but I, um, I, know, I know he was definitely really on... on um, Bill Clinton's radar. And ironically, you know, when we extradited him uh, as Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton was incredibly supportive. Um, so I don't know if I'd say, I don't know if it was actually terrorism. It was just the FBI's most wanted list, though. He was like number two right behind uh, right I mean, behind but that puts it in perspective, right? So we're going after bin Laden and who's number two on the list? Victor Boot. Yeah, but, and I think that just speaks to, um, look, the, the main focus was uh, Africa. And, you know, you, you kind of gave, we got sidetracked a little too on a segue that I think you tried to open up before. You brought up, uh, or maybe Murphy brought up aviation. First, you were talking about the trap guys and the, these people that are, are in the business but not in the business or facilitate the business. Uh, you know, this this whole case was a massive uh, education for me in, edu- in uh, aviation. So first when we did Boyaco in Colombia, he ran clandestine Colombian jungle airstrips where he had launched a, uh, he had his own small fleet of private aircraft. And that's how he got the drugs out of the Southern Colombian jungle to weigh stations in Suriname and Paraguay and other uh, Brazil and uh, Venezuela. And then they get shotgunned out from there. Um, so that's when I first kind of really got a taste for it. And then in this case, uh, I really learned as much as I learned about guns and arms and arms trafficking, and uh, I learned a massive amount about the aviation industry, and it is the most gray industry that I've ever come across in my life. It's where, you know, black meets white, good meets bad. Uh, it's obviously a completely legitimate industry. It's needed. Commerce would come to a grinding halt without it. But at the same time, um, 
That's where a lot of illicit cargoes moved and a lot of uh, money's laundered. Money, there's a massive amount of money laundering that's just in, in the buying of aircraft themselves. Uh, so it's just really a, a fascinating industry. And uh, at the end of the day, as we talk about them, Victor was not the biggest arms trafficker in the world. Um, if he was indeed, you know, he, he likes to argue he wasn't. But, but if we take for argument that he was one of the biggest, um, it wasn't because of his ability to, to obtain arms. After the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, you know, and there's been a lot of reporting on this. Guns were readily available. Guns, tanks, submarines. You know, Alex Yasevich and uh, DEA did an operation called Operation Odessa. Operation Odessa. Odessa. Yeah. Just watch that. You're, you're not talking about a narco sub. You're talking about buying a freaking Russian submarine. Uh, and, and, and what's the, the truth behind it is that it happened, right? And so all this stuff was available. I told you about you know, the arms factories in Bulgaria and Ukraine, Belarus. I mean, this stuff is readily available, but it's not really easy to get. And so to the degree that Victor was one of the biggest ever... Um, he's a brilliant businessman. The reason was because he assembled his own fleet of cargo aircraft, former Russian military aircraft, Aleutians and Antonovs, and, and he was the guy that could put it anywhere in the world. And if you really study arms trafficking, the, the VIG, the spread on, on what you get, um, selling AK-47s There's a New York term, whatever. the VIG. <laughs> Yeah, there you what, go, are we, right? what are we, you know, doing some, uh, you know, loan sharking here? Are we, Zach? <laughs> no wonder, you know, when you're part of the New York Mafia, your name ends in an I. Even though I can't say your name, it still ends in a vowel. <laughs> First sign you're in <laughs> <Yeah>. the Mafia. <laughs> Vinny Bag of Donuts, <laughs> right? You know, joy, joy, joy the chin, Vinny the nose, you know? Uh, yeah, so it, the reality is he, he was so big because he could put it anywhere. He proved that in our case. He, you know, he used one of he offered in our case one of his um, one of his standard operating procedures, which was uh, uh, parachute the crates of arms down into, in this case, the jungle. He'd done that. You know, I firmly believe he'd done that with the FARC themselves in the past. That's why it wasn't a hard sell to him to go to the FARC. Right. Um and, and so that's what really he really made him like the guy. He could put this stuff, whether you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, somewhere in Africa, in the plains of Africa, the jungles of South America, the mountains of Afghanistan. He could put it anywhere because he, he was able to physically he – was, he was what I call, you know, a logistician. Yeah, but, but, you know, that speaks to a little bit more. When you, one thing that comes out of this when you look at espionage cases, you look at some of the stuff the CIA did and other folks – a lot of these folks coming out, too, have got ties at some point back to the intelligence community in Russia. And one of the things about Victor, he added, langu he added language proficiency. My dad did. That's why we ended up in Iran. I mean, I first foreign language I spoke was Farsi. You know, and it's like, you know, and you start thinking about who recruits those kind of people. Well, he was in that and where he did his training was a natural selection place and a kind of a grooming area for people who were in the GRU, which was the Russian military intelligence arm. You know, after Gorbachev and after the failed uh, coup there, they split the KGB up into the FSB and the SVR. But the GRU has kind of been a mainstay. And there's a lot of indication Victor kind of got his start because of some you can't do something like this without some kind of higher level support, can you? Like the GRU? I mean, look, it's hard to imagine. And most of these bad guys, you know, Monzer had strong ties to the intel community that he thought was going to get his, get out, be his get out of jail free card. Um, so I think that there's multiple levels to that. One, it gives you certain access, right? But two, it also maybe tells you when it's time to put your head down uh, or it's time not to go to country yeah. A. Um, and so there's certainly... 
there, there's certainly a level of that. And it, listen, it also raises the question, you know, why Mother Russia wanted him uh, back so bad, why they why they decided a case like that was worthy of putting me and Lou and Brendan McGuire and Anjan Sani all on the blacklist in, in Moscow, you know, they're equivalent of the Magnitsky list. Uh, obviously, a lot yeah, of he knows where the tricked. bodies are buried. We'll, so we'll get into that. So let's talk about now assembling the team. So you guys have been given the challenge. Gauntlet's been laid down. You know, hey, yeah, we'll, we're already working the guy, but let's go after him. So I'm imagining this scene like the old Mission Impossible. Peter Graves has just got his, you know, uh, tape that self-destructs, and he's going back, and now he's pulling out his IMF book. You know, I've got to assemble the team. Is it Ginger? You know, is it the guy with a thousand faces? You know, so how do you go about assembling the team for this? What, when you guys, did you have a plan when you walked out of there? It was like, all right. Let's go figure it out. How, how did you put the team together to start going after this? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, the, I think the plan was to make the plan as fluid as possible, right? <laughs> make it up. <laughs> which which <laughs> means we're it pulling it out of our asses yeah. as we're doing this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> make sure that it can change on a moment's notice. Uh, it probably should have been like Operation Malleable. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he, uh, listen, we, we, we had... Lucky enough to meet meet one guy that uh, had some good access and uh, introduced me to a guy named that, that we ended up calling the Bear. And again, some of these folks we can talk about because um, I would normally never talk about them, but they've already come out and told their own story uh, to some degree, so it makes life a little easier for us. Um, but getting that initial intro where you said we knew a guy that knew a guy, I know a guy who knows a guy, but you know, did you already know this guy, or did you have to go out and target this guy to get to the next guy? Uh, not Target. I, I'd, I'd read about him and just was able to kind of reach out to him and said, you know, um, he'd had some interactions before with us. And I said, hey, here's who I am. I'd love to just meet with you and talk. And um, and it went really, really well. And said, yeah, you know, I've got someone I could definitely, definitely like you to meet. And um, so uh, and obviously I'm staying away from that person for a reason. But uh, but but these other guys have talked about themselves. We can talk about a little more freely. Um he introduces me to to the bear and uh but know, the bear is bear not russian is, so people don't get right. confused right so the bear is mike an english guy yeah and what's even funnier he's an awesome guy uh, i keep up with him you know to this day um showed incredible amount of trust and confidence in me um we had a great ride together and he was like a natural he was a natural for this too wasn't he he's crazy he was former british sas and had become a bush pilot in uh in in africa which is um there needs to be a movie about him just in and of itself he's a fascinating guy he's hard as nails and you think when you meet him and you see him he looks like a bear right and that's got to be why he's got the nickname but he's a like i, I always had this saying you know self-deprecation will never go out of style he's very self-deprecating and he told me the story that i think the second time i met him and i mean i was falling off my chair i'm thinking like what's the story you being the bear like you're some kind of badass when he was a kid, he had like this like fur-lined coat that he wore, and it looked like this character on this this show at the time called uh, the character was called the Bear. And he walked into his buddy's house one day, and his dad said something to like that. He's like, "Hey, what was that? What's that lad you had by the house today? The Bear, or whatever you call him." And I was like, "That's I was like, that's so much less sexy. Like that's how you get the nickname." <laughs> well, that's the because bear? he turned the coat inside out. The fur was supposed to be on the inside, and he was wearing it on the outside. One hundred percent. And his dad, the, the other kid's dad, was kind of joking about him. And from that day forward, he was the bear. Um, but when he told me that story, it also made me, you know, love him all the more because I was like, this is a real person. Like you're not caught up in these, 
you know, uh, self grandiation uh, uh, stories and your ego or yeah, exactly. Like you're a normal dude that I can relate to. And, well, um, you know, SAS are, you know, there's some yeah. badass guys oh, too. Yeah. There's been some documentaries about that, you know, um, oh, yeah. uh, a couple movies, Sean Bean played, you know, some, some of the SAS guys that were, you know, based on true stories and stuff. And so, yeah, they're, yeah. they're, they're like, you know, equivalent to some of our special forces. I mean, so for somebody like him, th that's what I'm saying. You got this cast of characters. So now, now you're starting to put the team well, yeah, together. Yeah. Kind of. You know what, Morgan, it goes to the point, too, before about how I said, like, we didn't, you, our, our, again, I prefer to call them undercovers, because now you're starting to get a taste for some of who these guys were, and, um, you know, obviously nothing wrong with the word informant, but at the same time, sometimes it has a little more of a negative connotation, people say, you know, snitch, this or that, that was not these guys, these guys were undercovers, they were, you know, um, some of them came from the professional world, and they just, it was thrill-seeking, sure, um, once we put our heads together, maybe sold on doing a little bit of good. Uh, and I mean that sincerely, you know, uh, especially some of the ones that maybe had been on the wrong side of the tracks at some point. They love the idea of being on the right side of the tracks and, and doing something good. For some of them, when you hear their stories, it, it almost sounds like a, an ounce of penance, right? Um, making, making some wrongs right. And um, first time I met the bear, he starts off by saying, uh, well, do you have any credentials? <laughs> showed him my, my badge and creds. He looked at it for a minute, laughed through it, and like literally hit me in the chest after. And he, and, and he kind of snarled at it. He goes, he goes, oh, fuck off. I could make one. You can get those on the internet for $5. I could make one of those in an hour. And I, I didn't even know what to say back to him. I was like, okay, well, those are my you know, government-issued credentials. I'm not sure what else I can show you now. I want to see my driver's license. <laughs> like, like, you didn't show him the secret handshake? You have to do the secret yeah. handshake. Oh, and he, let me tell you, he just, he just proceeded to interrogate me and tear me up for about 20 minutes. And then we broke, like, let's all go get something to eat, breathe a little. And I went back uh, with my partner, Wim, and we kind of talked to the guy that had, that had brought the bear to us. I said, that guy flipping hates me. I don't, I don't even think he's going to talk to me again. Like, I, like, this is a dead end. And the other guy said, no, 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 believe me, you got him. That's just the way he is. He's, he's, he's you know, doing his own vetting process. I said, I was like, well, your vetting process is, you know, my term for that is chewing my ass because that was not, that didn't go well. So let's we, back up from that though, because that, that kind of jumped ahead a little bit because you get this, this basically when the gauntlet is thrown down, that's like what, October of 2007, somewhere around there? Yeah, more or less. I, I think it was literally, I think it originally August, you know, maybe August I was starting to get things together. Yeah, right about then. So now we're like, now we're like November. Yeah, so, and, so when you're talking to this other guy, he's in the book. I, don't, I won't use his name because you didn't, but I mean, you know, you got yeah. the book in there and stuff, but he's your guy that yeah. intros, but, but you're not meeting him in the U.S. Your first kind of big meeting where everybody comes together is in, as they say, Copenhagen, right? That's in January of 2008. So that's what I'm discussing. Yeah, we're in Copenhagen. Exactly. And um, No, Copenhagen. Uh, Copenhagen. It's like Hagen das Copenhagen. I'm not, I'm not giving him more than I'm not going to do Stand it. your ground, Zach. Stand your ground. <laughs> it's not snuff. It's not, we're not talking about doing Copenhagen. It's Copenhagen. But go ahead. So I'm in, yeah, so we're in Copenhagen. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, that, that's where the initial meet. So when you asked about putting together the cast of characters, we really... We kind of weren't there yet. I guess we we're trying to assemble the team, but we weren't to the point of picking out um, the role players that we would insert. We were right now just trying to figure out who we had access to that could get us to where we wanted to someday be. Let's say it like that. And um, so after meeting the first guy, he, he gave every confidence that he had the access. He'd been in aviation and, and he had great entry points. And he said, look, I've got a friend and I know that he actually once uh, flew for the guy. And um, 
you know, for, for Victor, um, still keeps up with another guy who ultimately ends up being Andrew Smolian that has uh, access to Victor. And um, I, I think this guy could get it done. So we have that first meeting I just discussed. I'm a little downtrodden. I think it's over. Um, we'd agreed to meet one more time like that afternoon. Uh, I was dreading it. And um, so then we, we met the second time. And Bear came in with a very different attitude. He's a little lighter, still breaking my chops a little bit, but he's a little lighter. And uh, he wanted to know more about how this worked. And he didn't love the idea of the sting at first. And he was pushing it What didn't it he like about the sting? He thought it was kind of a... Because, again, he's British. And so in Western Europe in general, those uh, stings are just not... They're frowned upon. They, they look at it as, initially at least, as people being set up or entrapped. And Because um, he wanted so, to protect his buddy Smolian, right? Um, I, I don't know that he wanted to do anybody that way in a really underhanded way. He had a fallen out with Victor. He kind of got screwed over. So... Um, he didn't mind providing the information, but the, the idea of just going in and, and role playing. And I finally, the, the way we had our kind of come to Jesus was I just said, um, I said, listen, you tell me what you think is more righteous. We, I could go recruit a bunch of uh, quote unquote witnesses that are going to put their hand up and I can vet them as good as I possibly can. But at the end of the day, I can't truly prove whether their story's right or wrong. I wasn't there. I don't know. We can bring them into court and they testify and someone goes away for many years. And, and we do cases like that. That's righteous. Or we go and we offer a scenario that's exactly what we believe this guy has done for years and years. It's not entrapment. And I explained our laws in entrapment, how if somebody already has the predisposition, I was like, it's not like we picked some guy off the street corner and said, let's see if this guy will do an arms deal. Let's see if this guy will do an arms deal. We had a lot of evidence of a gross history of arms trafficking to include his own voice in an interview that he gave. I think he was in Moscow, but it was like a radio interview. Um, he loved being Victor Boot, right? And so he's already basically admitted to doing this. Let's see if he takes us up and is willing to do it under these terms. And, and you could see Bear really recoiled. And he said, I think that, that helped him. It made a lot of sense to him under that way. I said, I think it's, what, what better evidence is there than someone's own voice offering, accepting to do something and taking an action towards doing so it. So is it accurate he wanted immunity, though, for Smolian? He said, I'll do this, but you got you to you protect Smolian. He didn't want to, quote, throw Smolian under the bus? Yeah, I mean, there was talk about that in the beginning, and it was a, it was a tough point to kind of get over. Um, um, but, you know, initially that was kind of going to be the plan. It was a caveat, like, look, we have to see how things work out. But if he, you know... If he ends up just being a conduit, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we're going to go to bat with the prosecutors and, and, and we'll do the best we can. Well, explain who Smolian is. So he's another British expat. You know, Africa has a lot of expats uh, and mercenaries and different types of folks running around. And, and Smolian was another one of those British former military expats that had gone down there to make a living. Um, and he worked for Victor for years uh, through Victor's aviation operations. So, again, the the... Somewhat uneducated on this, mean you might say, you mean his arms trafficking? Like, no, like Victor ran a, a cargo business. That's what people don't get. The arms were, yes, a huge part of it, why we care. But there's this old uh, kind of saying about Victor that none of his planes was ever empty. It might bring, it's bringing arms into Africa and bringing like exotic flowers back to Belgium with it to be sold over there. He was set up in Sharjah in the UAE because it's a tax-free zone. And there's an incredible amount of commerce there. Everything from televisions and electronics to, you know, food and rice. He, he, he brought, I think, one of them, I think, I want to say he transported a lot of chicken, I want to say, out of Africa. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, frozen chicken. Yeah, because you could sell it. You know, some buy it for a dollar, sell yeah, it for you know, twenty dollars somewhere me recently else. Recently, about uh, is it true that you know the U.S. and whatever agencies were secretly using him and this or that, and and I don't believe that to be true completely. Um, he was uh, very adept at having his businesses layered. Because he was sanctioned. And anybody that's sanctioned, you see that. So, you know, Steve Murphy's sanctioned by the UN. He's not going to do business as Steve Murphy Incorporated. He wants to separate that business as far as he can from his true identity. Same thing. Victor's, some of his airlines, um, really, until we got his computer, we didn't even know some things were associated with him and had to go back to the Treasury Department and have new entities added to the sanctions list because he would just have it so layered that, you know, ABC Corp, you might have no idea was actually really truly controlled by Victor. So I believe what happened in those stories about the Iraq war where supposedly some of his planes were bringing in stuff. I think that in the Hayes war and just trying to move so quickly, you know, ramp things up, get goods in and out. Um, Maybe maybe some stuff wasn't vetted as well as it could, and maybe it was vetted, and it's just it was layered so well that it just didn't catch on to the fact that ultimately he was, uh, you know, some of his planes were used. I don't think I don't believe that to be the same as them going out and contracting him. He had no interaction. I, I don't believe. No, I don't think there was any direct relationship to him. But like you say, you get a prime con- for folks who have never done business with the government. You get somebody who gets to be a prime contractor. They hold the contract, but they can subcontract out a lot of stuff. And in this case. Victor is probably a subcontractor of a subcontractor of a subcontractor, but he's like you say, what he had was the infrastructure. He had right. the logistics so and really he had the planes. Part of the world, whether it's Africa or Afghanistan or over in Iraq, and you need to move in, you know, food like pa- paper supplies, whatever. Tons You're, and what, hundreds the of tons. Person is the guy that actually has an airplane that can get it there. And in Africa, you know, a lot of rough landings, uh, really harsh uh, climate conditions on an engine. The thing about uh, Russian military aircraft is they're indestructible, um, and they're still over there flying to this day with you know duct tape together. But they, they just keep running and running. And again, like that's why he's the guy. That's called hundred mile an hour tape. <laughs> Something like that, right? So yeah, so that's uh, again that's how he became the guy. And 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 supposedly none of his fl- you know he, he was a good businessman, so none of his planes were ever empty. Um, and so going back to Smolian, he, he worked in that uh, transportation, logistics, airplane stuff of Victor, certainly knew plenty about his arms trafficking. And uh, he, he, we came to decide, you know, he would be the entry point. So when we met Bear, uh, the, the conclusion of meeting Bear is, uh, you know, he looked at me and you can't see what I'm doing necessarily on the radio, but he, he's holding the skin on his hand. He said, you tell me this, who the F is going to protect this holding his skin? And I, and I told him point blank, and, and, you know, Murph knows this to be true. I said, look, at the end of the day, bud, uh, you know, I have to like the guy that's looking at me in the mirror when I wash my face every night. And I've got, you know, at that point, well, however many years it was, you know, over 10 years, 13, whatever it is, uh, years in this business, and I have no blood on my hands, and I plan on doing the best I can to take that record to the end with me. So we walk away from operations and he's like, he said, the, you know, the F you do. I said, I'm telling you right now, nothing is worth getting our, our people hurt. And if you're with us, you're one of our people. If we have to walk away, we'll walk away. We'll fight another day. We'll pick a different way, but um, we're not in the business of getting anybody hurt and your safety's up. now it's going to be a tough environment. I'm not telling you I can be there to cover you every second, but, but your safety is paramount to us. He seemed to, to believe I was being sincere and then kind of got quiet for a second I said, look, I'm going to tell you openly, 
I only think we have about a 10% chance of pulling this off, but I'm willing to, I'm willing to take the odds. And Bear looked at me funny for a second. He goes, ah, oh, fuck off with me on board. It's more like 90. <laughs> and so it got quiet again. I looked at him for a second. I was like, wait a minute. Are you, are you saying what I think I'm saying? Are you in? He goes, well, hell yeah, I'm in. This sounds like great fun. And I was like, he's, and I came to realize he was just testing me. He was doing his own vetting procedure before, which is why, look, all those years as a bush pilot and everything else, why a guy like Bear was able to survive. He's nobody's dummy. You know, he had his own, he had his own vetting process. But that's typical special forces attitude. It's like, yeah, I can do this. This is the end of part one in Rob Zack and the hunt for Victor Booth, the merchant of death. A lot of great stuff coming up in part two. This case comes to a conclusion. Some twists and turns you're not going to believe. Really exciting stuff, so make sure you stay tuned for part two. Also, make sure you check us out on social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. But more importantly, go visit us at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have got a ton of good stuff. We've got a 12-part series on the real narcos, talking about the real narcos. In fact, now with season three of Narcos Mexico coming out and this coming to an end, you're going to get the kind of insight you can only get from the guys who Netflix made the original series Narcos about. That's Steve Murphy, my co-host, and JP, Javier Pena. Part two is coming out Thursday. We'll see you then on Game of Crimes. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.